This week's episode is sponsored by Jagged Edge Productions and ITN Studios' Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey 2. Only in theaters, March 26th to March 28th. The suspenseful and thrilling sequel to last year's immense hit, Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey, amplifies the gore factor with ten times the number of kills to put fans both new and old at the edge of their seats. After Christopher Robin reveals their existence, Winnie the Pooh, Piglet, Tigger, and Owl land on the endangered species list as hard targets. Unwilling to hide in the shadows, the ultimate scream team embarks on a murderous rampage through the town of Ashdown to get their revenge on Christopher Robin, once and for all. So don't miss out, and mark your calendars to catch the limited engagement of Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey 2, only in theaters March 26th to March 28th. Tickets are available now. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Consequence Podcast Network. I don't want to scare anyone, but I'm going to give it to you straight about Jason. His body was never recovered from the lake after he drowned. And if you listen to the old timers in town, they'll tell you he's still out there. Some sort of demented creature surviving in the wilderness, full grown by now. Some folks claim they've even seen him right in this area. From the cold, chilly cabins of Camp Crystal Lake to outer space, we are Halloweenies! Greetings and welcome yet again to Halloweenies, a Jason Voorhees podcast. I am one of your co-hosts, Justin Larpark Gerber, and we are here to discuss everything from Larpark to John Carl, from Weekend at Crystal Lake to Weekend at Bernie's, with this episode on Friday the 13th, Part 7, The New Blood. We want to thank those of you who have been supporting Halloweenies over the past few years, especially those of you who subscribed to our recently launched Patreon page and listened to our first episode on that page, in which we discussed in true Halloweenies fashion Catherine Bigelow's 1987 horror western vampire, a-, a thousand genres in one classic, Near Dark. We've got a lot more ahead, so be sure to subscribe if you haven't already at patreon.com backslash Halloweenies pod. But enough about high quality content because we have to discuss the seventh entry in the Friday the 13th saga. So let's go around and discuss the first time we remember watching The New Blood. Let's go all the way down to that south-south side, south of Chicago, I guess you would say. Who is this on the phone? This is Mike Star Mummy Vanderbilt. Hello there, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Hello there, ladies and gents. So, Friday the 13th, Part 7, The New Blood. Probably one of the first, you know, probably the first uh, Friday the 13th I saw, I mean, for lack of a better term, in its original run. I want to take it back to spring of 1998. I'm up way too late watching Saturday Night Live, and the commercial came on, and it scared me enough. 
you know, that I, you know, went and turned off the TV or tried to run out of room or I just pulled the blanket over my head. But this was the point when I was really getting into horror movies. This is 1988 because this was uh, the year that I bought my first Fangoria with, or rather my mom bought me my first Fangoria with uh, Nightmare on Elm Street, The Dream Master on the cover. So I want to say this is one of the neighborhood kids probably rented this one. It might have been me. And uh, we watched it. It feels like I watched this one quite a bit. And not just from uh, when it came on video, but also just from countless runnings on AMC's Fear Fest. Whether I like it or not, <laughs> it's just like because it had Fear, like Fear Fest, I have uh, you know some nostalgia for, even though it's only from the past 10 years or so, because it's just something you put on. I used to put on in the back room back when I had Gable. Because it was Halloween, that's what you put on. Even if they were playing like all, all my least favorite entries in in all the sagas from Friday the Thirteenth to Halloween. All right, well, we've got uh, somebody else on this episode. We're talking a lot about blood, and this is somebody who I share blood with. This is Mackenzie. No, Daddy, no, Gerber. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> you know, honestly. <sighs> As with many of these movies, I can't remember when we watched this, Justin. It was probably like on USA and even more heavily edited than the actual theatrical cut. I, I do remember thinking it wasn't that good. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm excited to talk about it today. After honestly, this is probably the one I've seen the least next to part three, which is weird. But it is. So yeah, it was a it was a fun rewatch. I've got quite a bit to talk about, and it's a bit of a return to form uh, on us on a specific level, which I can't um, I can't wait to to delve into later on. Does this, uh, does this have something to do with animals? It might. Oh wow. Okay, because I I I had my uh, eyes and ears open, but uh, hopefully you can surprise me in this episode. Is this yes. the one where is this the one where all the animals die? No, that's the Adventures of Milo and Otis. That was shot over and a lot of yes. cats and yes. dogs died. Right. Please remember that, Mike. Every episode, we have to remind you of that. Uh, first time for me, this was definitely during a USA Up All Night marathon, probably hosted by Gilbert Godfrey. Uh, oh boy, this might have been during that marathon the first time I really encountered uh, hockey mask chasing. I feel like this the first marathon I saw, the first and second one were on, and we kind of just jumped right to part seven. So I have a bit of a, a fondness for this movie in a way, just because it's so intrinsically tied to the first experiences I had with the franchise and with this iteration of Jason, especially Kane Hodder's Jason specifically. So I'm looking forward to kind of dissecting my psychological state when it comes to this movie, <laughs> which a lot of people often talk about psychology in Friday the 13th part seven, the new blood. So I'm looking forward to, to diving into that as we go on. You know, we've talked a lot about blood in this episode, same blood, blood, and we do actually have new blood for this episode. This is a first-time guest, and this person is... Uh, Terry, I have a date with the soap on a rope, Menard. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, <laughs> this is actually my first Jason experience, um, this movie, but it wasn't the first full movie I saw. Mm. I remember, uh, uh, my memory is cut tied completely to... My dad renting this movie and telling me, OK, we're going to watch it tonight because I've been begging him to watch a Jason movie. And it had just come out or had just come out on VHS or something. And uh, <clears throat> I told my friends, I'm going to see Jason. I'm going to see him. And then we made it through when Tina kills her father. 
And my dad decided that this was too grown up for me, I think, and sent me upstairs <laughs> to watch the rest of it. Too many adult themes. <laughs> yeah. I don't think he liked the idea of the kid killing his uh, her father. But uh, yeah, so I snuck halfway down the stairs and I did see the part where Tina resurrects uh, Jason. And I remember how cool he looked coming out of the water. And so that was like my memory of, of this franchise for a long time and i don't i can't tell you which movie i saw first all the way through because um again my parents hated this series and they would let me watch like a nightmare on elm street but i couldn't watch this because i guess <laughs> it was in their mind all about uh nubile young women being like slaughtered and, and breasts and stuff but jokes on them i don't really care about breasts um <laughs> yeah so yeah i i, I don't know it, it's such a it's such a weird movie in my mind that i didn't actually see all the way through until until probably uh, college is what I is what I'm imagining. It's funny when it comes to like our parents. Mac is they were very strict growing up. I we, I wasn't really allowed to watch any type of an R-rated movie until they kind of started letting me watch slasher movies when I was about 12. They weren't about to start saying, "Hey, you throw on you know Basic Instinct or something like that." <laughs> they didn't really mind the slasher movies. They just even though granted there's a lot of you know sex and nudity in these films as well, but Mac was lucky because he was much younger than me, so he really got to start watching these movies at the age of eight or nine. Which I, and I would have killed to have an older brother who was amazing enough to let me experience that. But uh, <laughs> it's like yeah, putting words in my mouth, Justin. But uh... well, just, it's the truth. You know, you can't make up facts. That's no, just the way it is. It is, but that's why I I do also have such a hard time remembering my first experiences with these films because I was so young. I really they all kind of just meld together. But yeah. I do remember watching a ton of them. Uh, I know that we, you would either tape them off TV and, and we'd, we'd, yeah. we'd come home from school and our parents were still at work and you'd be like, okay, we can watch this, but like, don't tell mom and dad. Sorry, mom and dad. <laughs> but that's just how it was. You what know? can I say? An amazing, amazing older brother. Terry, you also mentioned how heavy this movie is right after the opening credits because in, in a span of two minutes, you have it's revealed that there's an alcoholic father mm -hmm. who is abusing his wife. Yep. And then moments later, patricide happens. <laughs> and that's before Jason shows up. Well before Jason shows up. Um, yeah, heavy themes in this movie. A very uh, pretty dark movie, especially compared to, the, to part six. It's incredible. It's even in the same universe. But Terry, I know you're creator, editor-in-chief over at Gaily Dreadful, but you, you also wanted to talk about this really, well, I think it's a pretty innovative new podcast that you've been doing called uh, Scarred for Life. Yeah, um, we started um, our year is coming up uh, the first week in October. We'll have been doing this for a year, which is crazy to me. But um, the, the idea behind it is that Mary Beth and I, my co-host, we talk with people in the horror community and in the horror industry about a movie that scared them as a kid. So whatever kind of kinder trauma, whether it's a real scary movie or whether it's something like The Dark Crystal or um, our episode that just dropped is on The Witches. Um, it's some movie that for whatever reason just got under your skull and under your into your brain when you were a kid and terrified you. Um, so yeah, we, we have that and it comes out every Monday. Um, and it's been a lot of fun. I've been able to talk to a lot of really cool people with it. And my guest list just keeps getting <laughs> longer and longer because everyone wants to talk about their kinder drama. Well, I feel like everybody wants, especially people who do these press tours and press circuits for years and years, the last thing they want to talk about some of the time, well, a lot of the time, is what they're actually working on. They want to talk about what they right. love and what and what influenced them growing up. So, I mean, even look at the, the, your recent batch of guests. I mean, these are all people who have been in the horror conversation for the last 
couple months even. I mean, you got you've had Rob Savage who mm-hmm. just directed Host, which is a huge sensation, solid movie. It's on Shutter right now. Amy Simitz, um, who did She Dies Tomorrow. Jeff Brown, who just did The Beach House. So it's great that you've got these new voices of horror talking about, you know, what we grew up with essentially. Like our contemporaries, as it were, in terms of age, are now the people creating the the works that we loved growing up. You know. Yeah, and you you mentioned Amy Simitz. It was so fun talking with her about the gate. She is um just just incredibly fun to just to talk with and some of the the stories that she had about growing up watching the gate was 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 pretty hilarious you know, she has a very dark sense of humor oh yeah the movies that she's been in and the, and the shows that she's done even like the girlfriend experience that she created mm-hmm. the, the the Soderbergh adaptation it's pretty dark but there's definitely some some dark humor in there too um anybody here i've never seen the gate two that's a, she said it's not as good. I have not yeah. seen it either, but um, I, it's written directed by the same duo, so I mean, at least they have that continuity. That's true. But I think about um, like the Hills of Eyes Part Two. Uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, speaking of the Hills of Eyes Part Two, that's not the first time that will be brought up during this conversation. The tease for everybody out there who's dying to know more about the Hills of Eyes Part Two. Well, uh, I think it's time. You know, I, I just heard somebody ringing the bell. I, I've come inside this abandoned cabin. I see this brown board in the corner. There are thumbtacks and plenty of notes. And I see, and I'm like, who who put all these notes up here? And I think to myself, of course, it's Steve Christie's bulletin board. Hello? Who's that? Oh, hi. What are you doing out in this mess? All right. Well, first off, once again, uh, no news on the Friday the 13th <laughs> legal front. Let's move right on from that. That's depressing. <laughs> to some legitimately exciting news. And we're talking about maybe for the, the third month in a row, this new Friday the 13th box set. Because we keep hearing more and more information, more and more uh, new features that are going to be included on this box set. But this might be the uh, piece de resistance because not only do I have a French accent, but <laughs> this new box set is going to include all of the slashed footage. And I do use that pun very much intentionally from Friday, the 13th part two, before we get started, unfortunately, and it was verified because Mike Vanderbilt put it <laughs> out there that we are not going to get the alternate ending with the mother's eyes opening. That would have been great. But, I'm really just hoping that uh, Shout Factory is playing us on this one. Wouldn't that be a great treat at the very end? That's what I'm open? seeing, watching all that footage, and then, bam, there it is. So I believe all of this will be, it won't be included in the movie. It's going to be a bonus feature, which is fine, because honestly, with Friday 13th, the uncut version of that, I, I would rather some of those scenes just be bonus features, not included in the movie. That's my own personal take. But this is something that, um, there's some more information about these cut scenes Bloody Disgusting did a pretty good profile on it, and they actually pulled it from bonus content producer Samuel Studios' Facebook page. So I'll just read you, read you this information straight from Bloody Disgusting. Playing the hunch, Edwin Samuelson contacted Friday 13th Part 2 FX artist Carl Fullerton, who reportedly shown the uncut footage to fellow FX legend Greg Nicotero. Indeed, it turned out that Fullerton was in possession of the footage, all saved to a nearly four-decade-old VHS tape. And this revelation was followed by a coordinated effort to retrieve the, pre- the, uh, the precious clips, excuse me, with Samuelson. 
Friday Thirteenth Part Two actor Bill Randolph, Samuelson's co-producer and Crystal Lake Memories author Peter Brack, and Scream Factory's Cliff McMillan and Jeff Nelson all lending a hand to shepherd the footage along. Ah, Tina Shepard, to shepherd the footage along to its safe transfer to digital. And if you go to Samuel Samuelson Studios Facebook page, there's a lot more info. It's on pretty all wild the, on, on their footage. So it's pretty wild how they they had to bake the tape in an oven for like 24 hours to get it to play. It's a wild story. Can you imagine that the nightmare of that 24 <laughs> hours of stuff waiting for it to catch on fire and like, please God, don't, don't be destroyed. Please don't be destroyed. Yeah. This is definitely one of those things that we just kind of figured were lost forever. Right. I, I never expected to see any of this stuff. As um, somebody who's been obsessed with this stuff for most of my adult life, cut scenes, deleted scenes, lost scenes. And for people who don't remember, like before it was a, selling point on a dvd or blu-ray uh you there were forums on the internet that you could go to and people would discuss oh i heard the rumor that this scene exists that that scene exists and after what 40 years when this stuff i I love that stuff like this is still out there that we haven't discovered yet i agree terry is there anything out there that you've heard of over time that you can think of that you would love to see but fear that you're never going to have the chance to I put everybody on the spot to answer that question. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I mean, I know that we're never going to see it, but I would love to see what was cut from the movie we're talking about today because there was a shit ton of it cut, but it sounds like all of that was destroyed by Paramount. So um, I don't think that's going to ever happen. But yeah, some of that's appeared in you can see a lot of stuff, I guess, in really grainy VHS yeah. copy. But yeah, it's a shame that we'll never see that properly reinserted into the movie like we got with the Jason Goes to Hell director's cut. I think it's an absolute shame on that on that corner. Mac, you know, growing up for years, we saw the back of that video box from Friday 13th Part 2 when you just plain see that extremely violent scene of the pole impaled in the back of Jeff's back. Will you be sleeping over the next month in anticipation to finally seeing the scene in its uh, entirety? Uh, no, I probably won't get any sleep. Um <laughs> <laughs> I'm just on the edge of my edge of my seat right now, uh, waiting, waiting, waiting for this to come out. Um, did you already pre-order this, Justin? You know, I sure did, and I can't remember okay, if it was with all the bonus material or not. I'm mean, in terms of um, literal bonus material, like posters and whatever. I just jumped on there and and purchased because I knew that they were going to be a, there was going to be a limited supply. Yeah. Um, but the other thing about this, in addition to Jeff and Sandra, is um, Edwin Samuelson says literally every single death scene in this movie was cut down. Even Alice's death in the beginning is supposed to be a little more visceral. And uh, that's the great thing about these horror box sets, or at least, I'm sorry, I apologize, this particular one, because a lot of the time, it's like the old Smith song, reissue, reissue, repackage. It's just the same old thing with a different cover art, you know, but this does seem like this is going to be the definitive Friday the 13th box set. that. and they're gonna get me to buy, they're gonna get me to buy the next one when they find all that Friday the Thirteenth part. <laughs> when they find the alternate ending for part three, yeah, it's gonna happen. I can't, and then I'll be spending another hundred and God knows how much dollars on it. But hey, that's the community for you. We're gonna we'll buy any of the stuff that we can grab our hands on. I mean, that's that's the way we are. Well, looking forward to that. That's gonna be coming out in mid October, and we'll definitely, I mean, we'll probably have a whole bonus episode on that, honestly, on all the new material because there's a lot of new audio commentaries too. I'm looking forward to hearing. Separately, even though there's not going to be an official Friday the 13th movie in the foreseeable future, the good news is that Wompstop Films, who released the highly successful fan film Never Hike Alone, which you can watch for free on YouTube on their page, 
they released a teaser trailer to their prequel, Never Hike in the Snow. And here is the plot for the 30-minute short film. Never Hike in the Snow is a prequel set three months prior to Never Hike Alone and follows the strange disappearance of Mark Hill, a Crystal Lake resident who went for a hike in the dead of winter and never came home. As local Wessex County Sheriff Rick Cologne, yes, Rick Cologne, played by Vinny Gustafaro from Jason Lives, same actor, and Deputy Alan Mabry, Brian Forrest, search for answers, town local Tommy Jarvis, Tom Matthews, Believes his old nemesis Jason Voorhees is to blame. Will Diana Hill ever see her son again, or will her son become another lost victim of the cursed camp? So, there we go. That'll be coming out soon. I'm looking forward to watching that. Has anybody else here watched Never Hike Alone? Yeah. Yeah. yeah I watched it. Yeah. It's, it's really fun. What a competent movie. And I mean that in the, in the nicest way possible. It was great I'm, to see Tom Matthews in that surprise appearance at the end. Spoiler alert. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> um, also, if, if people are interested in the um, Never Hike in the Snow, they are doing a final call uh, re-up on Indiegogo for the next uh, nine days, I guess. Mm. Um, so you can get in and get a Blu-ray if, if you are so interested because it's, it's still going for a brief amount of time. Cool. And they've also mapped out, I think, the next four movies, not just short mm-hmm. films in there if you go to their indiegogo page there's a lot of information there so yeah i mean they're just really fun and you can just see there's a there's so much love behind them there's no real what can i say there's no problematic associate producers on set giving them problems <laughs> i'll just say <laughs> you know and we'll be talking about that in this barbara episode. Sachs was not involved yes she was not involved none of frank accuso jr's acolytes were <laughs> All right, well, that's really all the news that I've got. Does anybody else have anything else to share on that front? Because, once again, it's kind of uh, grim. I don't know. Okay. Well, in that case, I think it's time to take a a nice trip to, I'm sure, will be a wonderful destination called Higgins Haven. I can't get this door open. There's something behind it. Oh, I smell something burning. Here, take this. Let me do it. No wonder somebody put this chair there. Something is burning. Lights aren't working either. Oh, real smart. What's going on here? Okay, so we're at Higgins Haven. We're going to be talking about the background information when it comes to Friday the 13th, Part 7, The New Blood. And let's kick it off this way. So the Friday, the, the Friday films were starting to make less money as they went along. They were kind of starting to lose steam. People were kind of out on the fifth movie. A lot of people at the time weren't really thrilled with the sixth one either when it came to the audiences at least. And Frank McCuser Jr., the producer, was growing concerned, especially with how well Elm Street was doing at the time with uh, Dream Warriors that had just come out. And he wanted to up the special effects to compete. And so who better to hire than special effects guru John Carl Beekler? And there's an interview with Beekler on Friday 13th, the Friday 13th, sorry, excuse me, FridayThe13thFilms.com from back in 2007. He had this to say about his hiring. He says, Frank had seen Troll a movie that Beekler directed and liked it very much. He also knew of my effects background. And I was told he wanted to upgrade the franchise as he was competing with the Nightmare films and they were hugely effects-driven. Freddy vs. Jason was discussed around that time, but neither Paramount or New Line could figure out how to go to bed with each other, so the only discussion regarding carrying on the story from Part 6 actually came from me. We knew we had to recap the end of the previous Jason adventure and show how he ended up at the bottom of the lake, and that became our starting point. There were all the usual concerns with the material. The script went through several rewrites. I really wanted a more action-oriented horror film with more character-driven elements. I very much approved 
of the supernatural aspect, I want to go even farther with it. To me, the whole thing about what makes Jason scary is his ambiguity, not understanding what makes him tick, why he is the way he is, and how he gets around so fast with always just the right killing instrument (laughs) are things that make you wonder and will keep you guessing. The supernatural element would be another terrific element to keep the viewers on edge. So how do we feel about the basic storyline of, you know, basically Jason versus Carrie, as it were? Uh, Terry, what do you think about the basic story compared to the earlier entries? Um, I actually really like the the overall story of this one. Um, I like the setup. He has described it as kind of being act one being Firestarter Mm. and like the second act being a stock and slash and then the third act being Terminator versus Carrie. And that like plots plot structure right there sounds really, really intriguing. And I think in some ways he managed to pull some of it off. But um, I think that there's a lot of I, I think there's a lot of fighting behind the scenes that that caused it to maybe not uh, coalesce in, in such a way that it fits this structure so well. Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, there was, you know, it's, it's documented that there were some chemistry issues between Laura Park Lincoln and um I've lost the lead's name. Is it Nick, I guess? Nick. Yeah, Kevin Spears. Yeah, Kevin Spears. Formerly known as Kevin, was it Kevin Spears, I think, when this movie came out. That's why I was getting confused. Hmm. And obviously behind the scenes issues with the associate producer producer and and Beekler. And God almighty, the, I mean, those MPAA cuts. <laughs> yeah. I think they truly ruined this movie because, like you said, he's going for more of an action horror Mm-hmm. He's not he's not trying to lean into any type of suspense. There really isn't there really aren't a lot of suspenseful moments in this movie. You basically see Jason approaching every single victim, you know, <laughs> from his point of view, you know. And he also he also has said that like he wanted to go really heavy on mechanical effects and and that because he knew the MPA was going to uh, slice his movie to, to hell, so he wanted to have some kind of like backup. So from the very beginning he was kind of planning for it to be a um, a mechanical and a special effects extravaganza it seemed like yeah i mean and i mean the special effects that we do see in this movie that we actually get the chance to see do come off really well but oh yeah obviously this movie there's hardly any blood in it it's very even though it's called the new blood ironically enough i guess the new blood is no blood mike (laughs) vanderbilt what do you think i know beekler also said that this movie was basically like um something along the lines of taking uh, making a comedy and taking out the punch lines would you agree with beekler's take on that no, because uh, this movie is not a really all that funny. <laughs> no, you're, he's talking about the special effects. Exactly. And you're I, taking I, the blood out of what he's going for, you're, and it's just not going to have any impact. And I, I agree with that. I think this is, I mean, not to bury the lead, this is not one of my favorite uh, entries in the Friday the 13th series. Although watching it again uh, did give me some newfound respect, some new things to like about it. But if there's one thing that this had going for it, it was those special effects, especially with somebody like Beekler in the director, director's chair. So it just undercuts everything. And knowing, now that we've all seen the extra footage uh, on that cruddy VHS tape, that what could have been, it's even more disappointing when you mm-hmm. watch this movie. Yeah, I, I didn't. I always forget about how some of those are even shot in slow motion. You know, like the head-crushing scene where you just see like, just a fountain of blood emerging. I mean, that would have—that is what he was going for. And instead, we literally just have—you see a head being crushed, briefly, and then it just cuts away. Like, what are we doing here? This is not—we come to a Friday Thirteenth movie. This isn't repulsion, you know. Like, I'm, <laughs> I'm not here for suspense or what? Who's Jason going to approach next? You know, just yeah, really it, undersells it. 
And Beekler had a lot of thing, a lot of negative things to say about the MPAA, either between both um, the Camp Crystal Lake uh, uh, memories uh, video and also the book, where he, I mean, he said in in his words, the ratings board raped my movie. Yeah. And then yeah. in the book, he goes on to say the MPAA is a group of housewives in Encino that basically decide what you can and cannot see, and ultimately we as artists are bent to the whim. And because of the fact that they were rushing this to production, they couldn't really uh, fight it in the way yeah. that Paramount could for um, the Indiana Jones movie that just came out where they had been ripping out hearts. <laughs> yeah, exactly. This movie was going to be rated PG-13. <laughs> it was, was going to be Gremlins, Temple of Doom, and then this PG-13. Mac, let me ask you a question. I'm not sure if you caught this. Yeah. Where do you, what state do you think that this movie was filmed in? What state? Mm-hmm. No, so far we've we've been we've filmed in California, we filmed in Georgia. I think we filmed in New Jersey as well. So at this point in this franchise, so where do you think Crystal Lake takes place in this movie? Oh wow! Uh, I'm, I'm narrowing down into the 50 states. <laughs> Michigan. You're well off. It uh, was filmed in Alabama. They had like a gator Alabama. wrangler on set. Alabama. Oh, that's right. I remember them that. talking about the gator, the gator killer, gator wrangler. Yeah. Terry, yeah. Terry, where are you? Where are you from originally? Were you? Are you from the south at all? Have you lived down there? No. Um, I'm. I'm. I lived in Alaska for the first half of my life, and wow. then um, Nebraska. And Nebraska, and then I know Vanderbilt. You've been in Illinois, right, this entire time. Yes, I have. Well, Mac and I grew up in the South, and I can tell you right now, you could not have paid us enough money to go swimming in any lake <laughs> ever, especially if, if, it, if they're worried enough that they have a gator wrangler with a shotgun on set. I mean, that's – thinking about some of the underwater scenes, I don't know. No, no not way. Not for me. No way. Never got used – here's something else fun. You never get used to alligators. I don't care who you are. <laughs> and you're living there. You never get used to those things down there. I saw this documentary about uh, alligators called Crawl. Like you don't want to get in the water with them. I mean, all. especially uh, if you if you have a daughter out there who's an incredible swimmer and she's she's in competitions. If you know Barry Pepper, it's best to stay away from alligators. God. I mean, that's just, we've all learned over the, the last couple of years. Uh, well. You know, Mancuso really wanted this movie to make some money. He was really counting on some great special effects, which were produced but never truly released onto the screen, unfortunately. So on a budget of $2.8 million, New Blood made 19.8 at the box office. And as for uh, Friday 13th's competitor, Elm Street, does anybody know how much the Dream Master made that year? I, I don't have the exact number, but I know for a long time, at least – upon the release of Freddy's Dead in 1991, that Nightmare on Elm Street 4 to Dream Master was the highest-grossing Elm Street of the series. Correct. Anybody, I can give you the, the number it, here. It was, uh, I think it was like $50 million, right? 49-point-something? $49.4 million. I mean, like 250% yeah. more than the new blood did. Wow. Tough tough call for him. But it's funny because Beekler actually did a lot of makeup effects on the Dream Master, yes. so it was kind of a wash he for did. him. Well, and was, is he did. Is he the only person to work on an Elm Street and a Friday the 13th within the same year? Has to be, right? Yeah. Because I feel like at this be. point we would have talked about directors or people who are doing special effects because we've had people who have intercut over the years. I mean, Beekler actually did some work on The Curse of Michael Myers, so you could say he did work on the three major uh, slasher franchises. So, okay, and yeah, it, it yeah, Terry, the first... I, Terry, I know that you're a, a huge fan of 
a dream master isn't that probably like the mission statement on your on your bio yeah pretty much yeah it's the best uh it's the best of the sequels in my opinion i would agree with that i mean I understand. I, we hold it really favorably especially those first i think we all like the first five for what they are in the elm street series you can't really say that about any other horror franchise no to that front the front half of those of that series it's very front yeah. but yeah it's so interesting too that uh you know they they would hire um Beekler for this movie from his SFX work on on Prisoner, and they also hired um, Kane Hodder because of the worm scene in Prisoner. But then they, um, and Iron Elm Street hired Rennie Harlan because of his work on Prisoner. Prison, so it's like yeah. that movie ended up like spawning these two big uh, entries in the in the franchises in their Which respective franchises. It's yeah. especially interesting because I've sat down and watched Prison because after years of hearing about it, I was I just was a blind spot. It's kind of a dull flick. Oh, is it? I've been wanting to watch it ever since uh, getting caught up on the Dream Master in this. I was like, I yeah. should go watch it. Rennie Harlan, fascinating career. And look, I'm a, I guess I'm a diehard two apologist. I think that's a lot of fun. All right, I apologize. <laughs> Cliffhanger's a lot of fun. Uh, Long Kiss Good Night is a but is but, but but before Long Kiss Good Night. Oh, it's the movie Island? that derailed his career. Has anybody seen Driven? No. Driven. I that's a Stallone flick. That right? race. It's yeah, Days it's of Stallone, Sylvester Stallone, right? And, and Kip Pardue, um, one of the worst movies of all time. Rennie <laughs> Harlan, a Rennie Harlan joint. So, but listen, made some great stuff. Deep Blue Sea, fun movie. We've talked about that in the past too. And so, but let's talk more about John Carl Beekler's career again. Much more of a makeup effects artist. Did a lot of work with Charles Band movies, especially. Oh, Lord Toys, you know, from Beyond, Reanimator. Uh, the Dungeon Master is, uh, yeah. I think, his uh, directorial uh, debut, and it's real low budget, and it's 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 junk, it's trash, but it's my kind of drunk, it's my kind of trash, and features Richard Mall from Night Court. Yeah, Richard Mall, what, what a horror career he ended up having because of House. Like, what a weird. Yeah. Nobody would ever think that, you know. He also, though, it has to be mentioned. I mentioned it earlier is that look, there would be no legendary Troll Two. If there was not a Troll <laughs> 1. And Troll, of course, strangely enough, uh, starred Julia Dreyfus and her husband, Brad Hall. I don't know if anybody's seen the original Troll, but they oh, feature prominently in that. Yeah, the, the original Harry Potter. It features a wizard named Harry Potter. That's crazy. Yeah. And then, of course, as we all know, it doesn't even have to be mentioned, John Garl Beekler also directed Ghoulies Go to College. <laughs> I wrote, um, those are the two movies I wrote down, Justin. <laughs> to mention <laughs> well, that was like the most notable directorial effort by him. i just saw ghoulies um, go to college and i thought god damn it like <laughs> that movie exists a major a major blind spot in my life yeah. next to um Ant antolini's um blow up would be ghoulies <laughs> which i still haven't seen um I, and isn't is is harvey corman in munchies or ghoulies harvey corman would be in munchie because he plays two roles in that i think right yes yes well, Guys, everybody, next year for the series, we're going to be doing all the Ghoulies and Munchies movies. <laughs> I, yeah, so, I saw, get ready. I, I saw the first Ghoulies at the movies. My parents took us. You this saw the theaters. This is 85. So wow. we're, I'm like four. It uh, came out in March of 85. And my parents took us because they were expecting something closer to gremlins <laughs> even though gremlins is kind of you know if you look back it's kind of terrifying but uh, it's a little more risque than than gremlins but to my parents credit look we paid for the movie we're gonna stick through it we're gonna get through it and uh yeah it became kind of a favorite 
in our in our household growing up. I wonder how long before Terry's parents would have said. Uh, it's funny. It's funny you should mention that because I was just going to say I only saw the first uh, opening scene in which there was a devil ceremony and they rip like someone's chest open. And that was the only time I that's the only part of the movie I saw as a kid. My dad was like, go upstairs. <laughs> it's always go upstairs. <laughs> I have to say my only experience with ghoulies, strangely, I think we were at a bar pre-COVID and uh hopefully it was pre-code and what were they showing justin you were there i think and they were showing one of the ghoulies movies on on tv in the background uh, oh yeah i think a holiday club here in chicago <sighs> and i can't remember which one it was but uh i it was just one of those moments where we both kind of st- still thought why haven't we watched any of the ghoulies movies yet <laughs> well there's so many movies that i'm knocking out on like Tubi. And Pluto TV, just based on the video boxes I remember from 40 or 30 years ago. So that's what those wonderful streaming services are for. Um, sadly, there's no real easy way to transition into this. I remember a couple years ago when we were talking about John Carl Beekler, I think it was for our Dream Master episode. We talked about how he at the time was battling cancer and he sadly did succumb to that. I think it was actually just a year ago or so, a couple years ago. So, mm. you know, he leaves my legacy as being one of the true... Um, giants, that's not hyperbole, especially when it comes to that horror genre and, and of the 80s. I mean, so many of our favorite 80s horror movies he worked on. And so that's a wonderful legacy to have. And it's just, like you said, Terry, earlier, it's a shame that we'll never see his true vision for this movie. You know, it's just yeah. a shame. But um, there's always, there always seems to be a lot of regret when he talks about this, um, about this movie. With- yeah what what could have been and that's it's always a shame um when uh, the director's vision isn't isn't able to come to fruition yeah you know i was thinking about this last night too in in regards to that mac is like let's say you worked at the mpaa right and and you go home at the end of the day let's say we all have families at this point and, and your spouse asks you hey so what did you do at work today are you gonna be like proud of what you did like, oh, I got them. To, I got somebody's – I compromised somebody's vision today. <laughs> like, <laughs> oh, wonderful. You know, we want, every day is the same thing. Oh, it must be a soul-sucking job. Like, I don't know anybody who works at the MPAA. Have you ever even had an interview with somebody who actually works at the MPAA? I, I, good God. I can't even imagine that the compromise that must be made. It's like second to being a lawyer. <laughs> Am I right, people? Let's move on to the writers credited on this film, and let's just say that one has an interesting backstory. So – an official human being who wrote this movie would be <laughs> Daryl Haney, who had a bunch of ideas, and the only one that really stuck was the Carrie versus Jason idea. And this movie was actually originally subtitled Friday the 13th Part 7, Jason's Destroyer, which um, coming off of Jason Lives seems like a kind of a come down. But uh, <laughs> long story short, he, this movie went through, like Beekler said, a lot of revisions, but Haney's career... Some minor work, but most notably wrote some classic Skinamax movies, such as <laughs> um, some classics like Mirror Images 2 and Animal Instincts 2, both movies of which I definitely never watched in the 90s. <laughs> promise you that. And what can I say? This guy likes sequels. <laughs> I mean, Extra 3. 
<laughs> yeah, it's just he wanted he wanted to work with Roman numerals only. That was his, that was his contract. His agent insisted upon it. Only Roman numerals, only direct to video. Not enough theatrical stuff to get. Exactly. Well, after the experience with the new blood, he's like, forget you. I'm gonna go. I'm going to Cinemax where the real money is. Boy. He had a good career as an actor too, like doing sequels. Yeah. Like some character like work that. and things, yeah, definitely. Lords, Lords of Deep, Watchers too. And actually, I watched uh, one of them, which I would recommend to everybody find. Uh, it's streaming on YouTube. It's a movie called Self Defense, and it's a siege film. It's uh, Canadian. Daryl Haney plays uh, accident. He didn't write it, but it's very prescient. I don't want to talk much about it because uh, it's got a terrifically bleak ending. I guess that's a spoiler. I don't know, but <laughs> it's on YouTube. It's a dark, grainy copy, but if you like Siege movies like Assault on Precinct 13, Night of the Living Dead, absolutely worth a watch. And what's not worth a watch would be Best Defense, starring Dudley Moore and Eddie Murphy. <laughs> only time Ed, the only time Eddie Murphy Eddie Murphy was doing an interview with uh, David Letterman, and he said, was there ever a time that you were nervous about your career? And he said, right after I did Best Defense, because he said it felt like the House of Cards was just going to come crashing down. Cause it, was at, <laughs> I, it was at the height of his success. He does a minimal, minimal role in this movie with Dudley Moore about a tank. And uh, he's not, but they put him on a poster because he's the strategic guest star. Well, you know, people obviously come to this podcast to make sure we can talk about Dudley Moore 80s movies. And let's do it real quickly. Because here's another story about that is the whole movie was in the can without Eddie Murphy. Yeah. And it tested awfully. And obviously Murphy was coming off of, you know, 48 Hours and Beverly Hills Cops. So they just randomly started inserting him into the movie and uh it doesn't work everybody <laughs> it's very it's very strange um so everybody make sure to skip best defense but maybe check out self-defense uh starring daryl haney yeah it's good it's worthwhile um here's something though the second credit to this movie goes to manuel fidello and now to me this name sounds extremely familiar so i thought oh maybe he's written some other things and the reason it sounds so familiar is because I have the Criterion channel, and I watched oh, a little, la, la da Yeah, well, it's like a highfalutin here. And I still haven't watched uh, Blow Up, by the way, once again. And I saw a movie called Captain's Courageous, uh, which is based on a Rudyard Kipling novel from like the early 30s or 40s. And Spencer Tracy's in this movie, and he plays the character Manuel Fidello. Now, do you know what the origins are of the name Manuel Fidello? No, no, I can't say that I do. <laughs> Here we go. Alan Smithy gets used for people who disown their work. You know, you'll you'll see like for instance in terms of our genre, we've been covering. I think Halloween. I'm sorry. I think um, Hellraiser Bloodline is an Alan Smithy yes. effort because it was disowned by, amongst many people, Joe Chappelle. Alan Smithy is one of my favorite directors. Honest to God. Terrific guy. Well, interesting. But if you ever see the credit Manuel Fidello. It's used for people who cross the WGA picket lines and work on the movie. So it's it's scabs who work on movies during Writers Guild strikes. And so somebody crossed the picket lines to work on this movie. And hmm. to this day, it's not it has not come out who it was. Someone so crossed the picket lines to work on <laughs> this movie. <laughs> <Somebody> <laughs> let, me, let me put it that way. Imagine being exposed like, oh, I was this up and coming writer. I was I was under the tutelage of <laughs> William Goldman and. And Robert Town, and I, there were big things ahead. And I, and why, why haven't you written a movie in 35 years? Well, I, I crossed the strike to work on Friday the 13th, Part 7, <laughs> the new <laughs> Hey, 
God bless. I'm sure they still got paid for it, even though you know they betrayed their union. How dare you? Now wait, then. Um, so yeah, if you look at the credits, it does say Daryl Haney, Manuel Fidello as the two credited quote unquote screenwriters. So there you go. Are they not both credited? And that's why I was confused about the name uh, for a short called Michael vs. Jason. They are, yeah. Um, Ooh. So that's why I was like, wait, is why are they still crediting Manuel Fidello if that's just kind of like a a name they throw on top of who you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I guess somebody crossed the picket line. And maybe it was the same person who crossed the picket line. Maybe it was Robert Town. Well it does say <laughs> characters. So I'm I'm assuming that they just credited the name because oh, I of see, I see. using characters from that movie is what I'm guessing. Yeah, that's what they usually do in the case. It, yeah, IMDb and, and Metacritic, are, I'm not Metacritic, but Letterboxd are still very strange with their credits sometimes. Yeah. Like, if you go to, um, oh, look at all these movies that Christopher Lee's been in, and half of them are interviews. <laughs> all right, can we, can we get rid of these interview docs that nobody sees are 15 minutes long in Letterboxd? Can we get rid of these? There's really not a place to say this, so let's just talk about now this movie, much like earlier entries has a prologue that kind of runs through the greatest hits of the series. And as we've discussed and dancing on this episode, cause he hates him, but the person who does the narration is Walt Gorney who played crazy Ralph oh, in Friday really? 13th part one and two. Huh. It's, it's Walt Gorney. I think that's great that, uh, Beekler brought him back. It seems like such a nice touch that, uh, we've talked about this before. It's always kind of surprising how much, the directors and the crew on these movies do seem to have a certain affinity for the fans of the series, despite Paramount treating the films like redheaded stepchildren, like, like, uh, you know, just they make money for us, but we're not proud of them. Yeah, I feel like they're well, everybody wants to kind of once the directors get involved, even like Tom McLaughlin wasn't a huge fan of the series. Beekler was even like, why are we doing any more of these? But once you get the job, you want to win over the fans. You know, you want to do as, the best job as possible. So. How is there, I, I, I don't know. I, I, I guess some of these put people off, but I, I like I like the intro of this movie. It's just fun. I don't know. It's a fun way to go right into the opening credits, and it is a way to kind of refresh everybody's mind I, as to where Jason is. I like it. I, I like this one as well, but here is a uh, here's a uh, an aside. Which opening narration, or not narration, but uh, Jason Voorhees clip show do you prefer? The one for part four? Or the one for part seven. Neither. I, I, I'm not oh. a fan. <laughs> I didn't like oh, this one. No. I, I, this one felt like a trailer to me. I almost felt like has the movie actually has this movie started, or is this just a trailer for the movie that I accidentally clicked on or bought <laughs> and in its place? It, it didn't even feel like the movie had started. It just felt like a trailer, and I didn't like that. I understand why they do these things, but if you're going to see the seventh, the sixth sequel <laughs> to this franchise, in a span of eight years, uh, you you better know. All you need to know is that Jason, you, you, basically, what they tell you. But if you don't need to be told that going in. Everyone knows the story, and if you don't know the story, don't go see part seven. You know, I I, I like it more on the sense that it does give both of the movies an epic kind of quality that they never really uh, bring home uh, in the <laughs> opening. Like this is just this ongoing saga that you need to pay attention to. I, I kind of like, I, I like the obnoxiousness of that, I suppose. Yeah, but it yeah, is Terry, also, what do you think about yeah, it? Yeah. 
I, I'm not really a fan of any of them, to be honest. Uh, this one is probably the least um, annoying to me because it is only three and a half minutes long. But oh, you don't like the 15 minute. <laughs> oh, dear God. <laughs> no, I hate those. Whenever those come on, I'm just like I end up fast forwarding through them. And it it just feels like filler. It feels like we need to get a, a runtime to a certain length. So let's just have the first movies ending tacked onto this. So this one didn't bother me in that regard because it is only like three and a half minutes long, I think, at the most. Um, but, yeah, I just I guess coming into this this franchise um, now, not having seen the previous ones in a while, it was kind of a nice little catch up, I guess. But, yeah, yeah uh, what, I mean, what do you need to know? I guess I just like the. I think I like it just feels like a like a campfire tale. Like they're trying to get back to the bare bones of it all. Like I'll put it this way. Yeah, but if and when we get another Jason movie and they do something like this, I'll probably be on board. I mean, that's fine. But the problem the problem with this movie is is that they're like, oh, here, here's all these things, here's all these things. But this movie is such a standalone and really doesn't pay any attention to Jason's history at all or anything. Why even tell us any of that? You know what I mean? Like it's kind of <laughs> well, like. I think the, I and think it kind of just was, makes you wish you were watching Friday the Thirteenth Part Six. Yeah, seriously. The movie was clocking in 84 and a half minutes, and yeah, they needed <laughs> the MPAA was like, minutes. we refused to put a stamp on this, and we'll <laughs> extend it by three and a half minutes, and cut out every single death scene. That's what they were, That was the insistence, so Oy. they wheeled in Walt Gorney for the narration, and uh, <laughs> there it was. Uh, some other background information. Walt Gorney was only 40 years old in uh, the original Friday the 13th. That's just, that was just hard living. Split second thought you were right, but no, he was actually older. <laughs> I think we actually looked that up, and I was about to have a midlife crisis on my phone. <laughs> um, some other background information. A major uh, uh, plot point behind the scenes is that a lot of the a lot of stories came from a lot of the uh, the women, the, a lot of the actors who were who were kind of lusting after the, some of the hunks on this movie, and they were being rebuffed. <laughs> Many of them were being rebuffed. And this this production kind of got the the subtitle of Fry Gay the Thirteenth because many of the the men and some of the women on on set were actually uh, members of the LGBTQ plus community. And often on this podcast, we Mike well often we Mike Vanderbilt. Let's let's get honest. He was specifically point out the the quote unquote the Stone Cold Fox Stone who was like yeah, yes. the most attractive and most desirable uh, woman in, in the film. And I thought, well, since we've we've dedicated so much time to the Stone Cold Foxes, let's 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 uh, let's dedicate some time now to the Stone Cold Foxes when it comes to the men of the franchise. And uh, Terry, the rock hard hunks, the <laughs> rock hard hunks. I love rock that. R H H. There's a really good article on your website, on the Gaily Dreadful website, by uh, Justin Lockwood, and it's got a great title. It's called <laughs> "Thirsty Enough to Drink Crystal Lake: The Hunks of Friday the 13th. <laughs> That's and weird, he yes. basically breaks down the was it? What'd you say, Mike? The oh, rock, the hard, rock hunks? hard hunks. Yeah, he he gives the MVP for each movie from one through ten. So let's run through these real quick here and see if we uh, if we would agree on his assessments. And I think some of these are pretty obvious, but some of them are are out of left field. Let's see what we think here. The first movie, maybe maybe out of left field. Left field for sure with this but, one. But uh, Mark Nelson. Who plays uh, who plays Nettie in the movie? Kind of the jokester of the movie. Now I think we pointed out that the first couple of movies, even the nerds are extremely ripped yeah. and hot. You know? <laughs> but uh, yeah, Terry, what do you think about this? Is this a controversial decision? Uh, yes, I, I, I it's it's one where like I wanted to exert editorial control, but I let it go because uh, for <laughs> me, 
it's it's Kevin Bacon. I mean, you just, it's, yeah. it's Kevin Bacon. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, I can't disagree that the shirtless uh, Mark Nelson running around with his like what shirt tied to his waist is like, yeah, he's uh, he's kind of cute if you kind of get rid of the Native American appropriation <laughs> yeah, headdress, that he's doing yeah. at the time. <laughs> oh my god, yeah, doing the Native American. Oh my god, yeah, exactly. Yeah, everybody's looking pretty pretty ripped. But yeah, it's a, it's an interesting call, and we call that hot take in, in journalism. But it, it gets the eyes in there. It keeps you reading. So for part two, he has Tom McBride who plays Mark, the uh, who is the. Oh yeah. Uh, and I I that's a. You Without know, a doubt. Yeah. That it's hard to it's hard to argue, right? That one that one is I, I there's no arguing with him, and then, and he's also gay. So I mean that's that's two wins that, in my court. There you go. <laughs> and of course, as we mentioned, you got a the, chance. Uh, very important to mention this. He appeared in once again. He appeared in an episode of Highway to Heaven. Oh, God. Uh, that will be brought up at least two more times in this episode, I promise. And then for part three, I, I would say this is a uh, pretty high yeah. up there, folks. We got Paul Krakow plays Rick. I mean, just go right back to that barn scene, right? He's got his shirt off and he's he's he's, he's hauling hay. I mean, that's uh, what can you say? Any takes on that, Terry? I, I love it. Um, I I it's one that was one where I was like looking for photos to include in the article, and I was like, yeah. <laughs> yep, yep, yep. I can't. I cannot disagree with that. He does uh, pull a good bale of hay. You're like, this is, you know, it's like uh, I can complain about my job, but right now everything's going just fine. <laughs> exactly. Um, now here's a. Shelly a... gives him a run for the money, though, right? Can we? Agree Shelley, with that's him? right, Shelly. <laughs> um, so, for the final chapter, this could be a controversial decision. This could be, but maybe not. Uh, Justin Lockwood selects Crispin Glover as Jimbo. What do you think, Terry? This was one where when he mm. said that I was um, – I I didn't quite agree. But I will tell you, watching – I rewatched this movie in preparation for this podcast because um, I wanted to – it had been a while since I've watched any of the Friday the 13th movies. And he has this kind of goofy charm to him that – it's it's a dark horse, but I, I, I'm not mad at it. Yeah, I mean especially because I think so many of us are so programmed to think of him as George McFly. So you kind of forget, you know, that he looks like anything else. You know, even, even like if you watch The River's Edge, you're not thinking, oh, look at this guy. <laughs> but yeah, he's got some something to him in this movie. I, I think that's not bad. That's not a bad choice. Um, and then now we go to Friday the 13th, part five, a new beginning. And the selection is John Shepard. Yeah. Who plays Tommy. Anybody disagree with that? I think that's a pretty good choice, folks. No, I think I would have gone solid. with Demon. Ah, oh, Miguel. Miguel yeah. Nunez Jr. I like his style. I like those leather pants. He's, he's got a look. He's got a look. But yeah, John yeah. Shepard. I think the accompanying photo is him, like with his shirt off, sweating. Mm-hmm. I'm like, I, 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 I get it. <laughs> yes, I get it, it. I get the. I get the draw. You know, I he's get the draw. Sweaty through that whole movie. Yeah, everybody's like trying to work out like the dimensions on the photo to include in the on the website. Like, yeah, it's gonna take a little longer than we thought. Uh, Jason Lives winner is not Tom Matthews, folks. Really? And it's also not Horshack. It's not oh. Horshack. It is Tom Fridley. Who plays court? Yep. Hey, I get it. You know, yeah. he looks like John Travolta. You know, good-looking guy. I'd like to get rid of that hair. Um, sure. But other than that, yeah, I mean, he, he doesn't do sex very well. <laughs> <laughs> he's like, but, he's, he's the guy. He's the one guy in these movies who um, has to be told, like, uh, who, who's the one that's actually saying, "Is it almost over?" <laughs> you know, he's like yeah. the one. It's the one case of it. Uh, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, but you know, change his hair, um, get him a little practice in bed and you know, I'm, I'm all for him. And, uh, moving on to this movie and the winner 
is Kevin Spurtis as yep. Nick. And he, he much like Court, I, I recognize, is also wearing some cutoff jeans in this film. Yes, yes, he sure is. And also in real life, a, a gay actor as well. So that also, um, yeah, there you go. He is, but you know what? He also was pretty upset with uh, the Camp Crystal Lake memories. Um, really? Yeah. Um, I was listening to, um, a while ago, I was listening to the Friday the 13th podcast, and they had him on as a guest, and he said that a lot of the stuff about him being gay was off the record. Oh. Um, and he wasn't out at the time, like professionally out at the time. And then he said that a lot of like younger gays would come running up to him at conventions and get want to get his autograph and it like freaked him out because it was all supposed to be off the record. Wait, you're saying wow. that they outed him on Crystal Lake Memories? Yeah, that's, like what, that's what he said. Oh, that's, wow. That was from his mouth in an interview with, with Kevin on uh, Friday the 13th. That is what he said, yeah. Oh, geez. That's the fascinating thing about when it comes to documentaries, because this is a sensitive subject, obviously. Because as much yeah. as we want to have revealed in documentaries, obviously this is something that you want to do on your own, right? I mean, this right. Is, that's that's the tough call with these. And they, they should have done a better job with that, obviously. You can still say, you can say th- something like, oh, you know, many of the people involved were gay, but... To get specific with it, especially if that person's not out, dangerous slope to be on, folks. Be careful out there if you're doing any documentaries or anything like that. Yeah. But yeah, very attractive man, nonetheless. And uh, we're going to move on, though, to part eight, Jason Takes Manhattan. Todd Caldecutt as Jim. Couldn't tell uh, the you. moment of silence, because I'm trying to remember who the <laughs> hell. Oh, no, Could I not tell you who that this is. is the guy, this is the guy from the very, very beginning of the movie who's on the boat and, and does the prank on his girlfriend. He's... he's Jason takes the new mask from him. That's who this guy is. Oh, the guy who looks like he would be in Mother Love Bone. <laughs> yes. Was a, he was really heavy into the sub-pop Seattle scene, I think, at the time, this guy. Okay, moving right on. Sorry, Todd, you're not going to get a major kudos here. Now, this is from Mike Vanderbilt's... I don't want to put you on the spot, Mike. <laughs> is, this, is this your fourth favorite movie of all time, Jason Goes to Hell the Final all, Friday? All time, all time. Well, this person is right behind, actually, uh, right behind blow up, right behind, blow right up. behind. I gotta see that in munchies. I'm telling you. Yeah. So Adam Marcus's brother, Kit Marcus played officer Randy in this. And, uh, that's the choice that Justin makes for this. And I vaguely remember this character, you know, attractive looking guy, kind of a raven hair as it were. And doesn't get a lot to do. You know, I think Jason actually takes him over at one point, but I can't he wait. He's a nice face. Movie. Yeah, sure. Right. And he's attractive. guy. And then, to top it all off, Jason X, Yanni Gelman as Stony. Wait, they didn't go with Cronenberg. Great name. <laughs> <laughs> what a great choice that would have been, though. That full head hair. Uh, so yeah, Stony, who is—I guess he's the guy who gets killed before his girlfriend gets uh, frozen and has her head smashed. So pretty good list. There's look. There's a lot. Look, there are just as many hot guys as there are uh, hot women in the series, and. Uh, they need to be more appreciated, you know? I okay. completely okay. agree with that. I mean, but you could probably, honestly, Terry, you could probably just do a follow-up to, like, still thirsty enough to drink Crystal Lake. Second oh, I've, I've been thinking about it, yeah. <laughs> Start doing tiers of, of these and see, uh, you could probably get some more, even more readers that way, too. Um, so there we are, and what better time and what better place to move on to our next category, which is going to make our heads want to oh, pop uh, off of our shoulders. God. It's a category called Time and Place. What the hell is that? Humanoid. Organic composition is unclear. Can someone tell me what's on his face? Uh, 
Some kind of 20th century carbon filtration unit? It's a hockey mask. Oh my god, I've got a lot of notes here, everybody. But this is gonna be this is, this could take a little bit of time. We determined after our last episode that Jason Lives, even though it came out in 1986, takes place in 1990. Okay, that's what we have to start with. All right. Okay. Well, I've got some. Yeah. Oh, boy. <laughs> so here's a couple things we we gotta determine though is we have to determine two things. What year is it for Little Tina at the beginning of New Blood? And then what year does the majority of the film take place? I have some notes. Does anybody want to start this off? Yeah, I would love to. I believe, according to Crystal Lake Memories, Corey (laughs) narrates that part seven takes place 10 years after part six, which would put this at, what, the year 2000? (laughs) Well, that's the confusing thing now. I think what he means is most of the movie takes place 10 years later. Yeah, I don't think now, he means. No, I'm not that. saying from young Tina. I'm saying that the majority okay. of the movie that with older Tina at the you know at the cabin with all with everybody there that that takes place ten years later than part six. Okay, but the problem is, is that it's never stated in the movie. Never stated in the movie. Yeah. Here, here's here's some here's what I have here. So, I think we know it definitely takes place after the events of Jason lives because we see Jason at the bottom of the lake, even when we see young Tina. Okay. And he doesn't look that decomposed yet. So now wait, you see Jason say, at the bottom of the lake with young Tina. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. See, this is confusing to me because I always thought when I was watching this, I was like, okay, I was really ready for this time and place category because I, I remember, and this is one of those things where you just remember it the wrong way that like there was some kind of reveal later on in the movie that Jason was actually responsible for pulling the father under and killing him. Oh no. no, yeah. no. <laughs> wow. I was, and I was flip flopped, but yeah, I, I, I didn't realize that you actually see Jason under the lake when it's young Tina. Yep. That makes it even more ridiculously crazy because of some of the other facts coming up here. I'm sure. <laughs> so what I would say, and I'll, I'll, and I'll open the field to everybody is that this movie came out two years after Jason lives. So I would say that young Tina is in 1992. Terry, what do you think about that? This is very scientific, so please be as precise as possible. It's on record. Well, I, I did a bunch of research on this because I wanted I wanted to be right. But I will say IMDb <laughs> trivia, which is, oh. of course, such a font of knowledge, yes. says that it was October 13th, 1991, which, if we're sticking to the Friday the 13th moniker, does not exist. The Friday thirteenth would have been in September of that year. Um, so and there was probably was there a full moon, Justin? Was there? A yeah, full I should. Look, I got to look at my extensive notes on if there was a full moon <laughs> during this time. Was there a lightning storm during these days? <laughs> yeah. So I, I mean, you know, I, I listened to your guys' last episode and where you determined that it was uh, 1990. Um, I, I, I gotta think that this was in 1991, one year long, because it wasn't. Um, he was not as decayed as I would expect him to be um, longer. And it felt like it, it's what's well, it's so weird because like <laughs> Tina talks about coming back to this place for so many years. And I'm like, OK, but how how many years did you go back here? Because, you know, that oh, just maybe like half a decade ago, people were getting murdered here at this camp. So I, I I'm, I'm really confused about that. But I, I decided that it probably was in September of two, of 1991 
And that would be 10 years later when somehow a nine or 10 year old Tina becomes a 26 year old teenager. Um, because the actress playing her is 26 when she's supposed to be playing, I think, 17. Yeah, that threw me off big time. That, that ruined it a lot of things. For me. <laughs> <laughs> it's like the year 2007. All right, so so you're saying that young Tina is September 91. Yeah. And and most of the events take place in the year 2001. <laughs> it would be about 10 years later, which is what Matthew right. said. Okay. In July. Right. So year. you're saying the main events 2001. Okay. So Mac, you said that you think that the events take place 10 years after Jason lives. So do you think this takes place in 2000 or 2001? I think it pl- takes place in 2000, but also young Tina is standing right next to a calendar that says October 13th in the beginning Good. of this wow. movie, which is even more like, that is true. it's Good. like they're forcing. Now that doesn't say Friday, it just says October 13th, which hmm. I thought was even more strange. Why would you say Friday the 13th? But what what do you think? Well, most of the movie can't take place in 2001 because nobody discusses September 11th. Unless it happens earlier in the year. (laughs) Oh, God. I suppose. Well, if it took place on September 13th, 2001, everybody just wanted to get away for the weekend. They were like, I got to get out of here. We got to go. Um, So, I mean, you guys all seem to be uh, on board with 2001, right? I can go with 2001 because, like Terry said, I can go – I conceded to Tom McLaughlin saying it was a year later, so I'm absolutely willing to say this is also a year later. So I, I get that. I can get that. And this and is Mac, the third film that actually takes place on a Friday the 13th? Well, I feel like the, the main events take place over the span of a month. I feel like there's like five days that go by. <laughs> so yeah. I'm sure oh, no, yeah. Once like, they get to, no, the I, I'm talking like – I don't even think uh, when you get to 2001 that it's uh, Friday the 13th anymore. I'm talking about the opening with Tina. That's yeah. obviously supposed to be a Friday the 13th, which makes it the third movie after part six and the original that actually takes place on the Friday the 13th. Even the main storyline takes place over, I think it is three nights. But, so I'm sure one of those nights was Friday the 13th, right? But it's does it say, other than the very the opening that's saying that it's October 13th, the that's the young Tina. So does it say, ever say when it's no. older Tina what the date is? No, no, it does not. Yeah, so we don't but know. You have to assume it's Friday thirteenth. All right. Did anyway, any, long story wait, short. Did anyone catch uh, Terry, Dr. Cruz, Dr. Bad News Cruz's uh, case file? What about that? It says it's it mentions sixty five. Well, that's just some old uh, telekinesis case that he was dealing with. That had nothing to do with. Um, Jason or anything. I thought that that was the first. I thought that that was supposed to be the year <laughs> in which the father died. With that that the first case no, with no, young no. That was, because that, that would have first, made her like a, no. 23, <laughs> but she's still, no. which would have made sense. But they, you know, she was supposed to be 17 in this movie. Well, well, the with a minute, she's all... drowned in 65, which would have been a whole other nightmare. Um, no, so let's go with. I'm comfortable going with. This takes place. God, can I throw a little wrinkle in here? Uh, yes, please, <laughs> please. <laughs> please, 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 please. If please, if um, <laughs> if we are holding true to that it was October thirteenth and that was a Friday the thirteenth, then it would have then the early parts would have had it taken place in nineteen eighty nine, because that was the uh, the earliest that there was a Friday the thirteenth. But it wouldn't, and it would have been sense. October. It yeah, in October, sense. he wouldn't have been under the lake. He is right, before Jason lives. <laughs> I'm telling you, your heads are going to explode. How about this? For Sandy's sake and the sake of the listeners, let's go with let's go with 2001. 
Does that sound <laughs> good? Because it's a year later. It yeah, they're celebrating the year that Arthur C. Clarke and Stanley Kubrick's combined efforts of 2001 came out. They're gonna watch it. Eddie's looking forward to watching it all weekend long. So okay. We are now in the 2000s for the Friday 13th franchise, Ooh, and I promise you, it's only going to get crazier as, we, as the series bravely marches on. So 2001, let's notate it. On to our next category. Mike Vanderbilt, you mentioned him earlier, one of your favorite singers. I'm talking about, ooh, baby, ooh, baby, ooh, baby, ooh, baby, ooh, baby, ooh, baby. All right, so of course the infamous, famous category of ooh, ooh, baby, ooh, baby is when we talk about the music and in some cases songs that are in a Friday 13th film. And this actually is quite a, a number of proper tracks that we it don't really think does. about. we got to get yeah. to the score first because we are in the midst of a changing of the guard. Uh, Harry Manfredini, who obviously did the score for those first six movies all his own, is all but gone uh, yeah. from this movie. It's strange because even though he gets, I think, the main credit, and it says that uh, Fred Mullen also does some of the music. I believe the only Harry Manfredini music that um, in this movie would be uh, cues from earlier entries. Am I right? Yeah, he uh, he said that he was working on Deep Start Six at the time, and oh. he said that he does not quote unquote farm out music and only does one movie at a time. And he was offered Nightmare on Elm Street, and he chose to work with Sean Cunningham on Deep Star 6. And so he did not, in his words, contribute anything new to the score for Part 7 at all. And I still have never seen the film, was his uh, quote on it. Wow. wow. Yeah, I mean, this tell. is definitely a change of pace. Yeah. I mean, the opening credits alone, where it's just like this weird, interesting drum theme over and over again with this murky sense in the background. The, like, pseudo-Terminator theme? Yeah, it's oh, absolutely. <laughs> it's a, it's a, I didn't think about that. It really is. And it's such a total departure from Manfredini's uh, scores in, in, in the past. So that makes a lot of sense because I saw that he was credited and I thought, this doesn't. This is like such a departure. Either he just gave up or <laughs> I couldn't, couldn't make sense of it. It's very minimalist compared to the, like the sweeping strings, especially from the part six is just strings and horns and everything else and dynamic. Well, and I wonder if it was a, I wonder if this was a deliberate effort, though, because they want to really pare down the over-the-top nature of Jason Lives. Vanderbilt, what, what do you think about the score? I, I think it's just an ugly score. Yeah. Like, almost <laughs> unlistenable, honest to God. And I, yeah, I don't think. I don't I don't like what Fred Mullen did. Uh, they should have just stuck with Manfredini. They should have delayed this movie for a full year just to get Manfredini involved. Yeah. <laughs> Well, just use, uh, re, reuse the old shit like they did in all the other movies. But Tina's, That's right. They could have just done that. Tina's uh, tel- telepathy theme is very Manfredini, and that's why I thought maybe that was the only thing he contributed. But if that's not... If, no, that, if was, he uh, did uh, that was Mullen. Yeah. And it was the only thing that, that John uh, Beekler liked that John, <laughs> that uh, Fred did, apparently. Is that the uh, well, you like can the... tell because it's used so much. Yes, it is, and it's you. It's it's almost overused. <laughs> it's so it gets so annoying. <laughs> well, when I was doing all my notes, I was um I had this soundtrack on, and this soundtrack is like is, is is as long as the movie itself. I literally think it's just the entire score laid onto iTunes, and there is one theme that you hear in this movie too. It's Tina overhears crashes, and it is literally the Halloween theme. That's just been absolutely aped and ripped off. Really? It's really bizarre. Yeah. I'll, 
I'll, I'll play the sample later on maybe. Yeah. Um, not, not, yeah, not a great score. And if you don't like the score, I've got some bad news for everybody because Fred Mullen did the entire score for Jason Takes Manhattan. Oh, that makes uh, a lot of so sense. So we'll be talking too. all about that. <laughs> he also did the uh, the Friday the Thirteenth series, and he, that seems to be kind of his into this because Barbara Sachs sort of got him involved with the movie. It seemed like, um, and John had said that it's too synthy. It's okay for TV, but this is a movie. Oh, <laughs> so, whoa! <laughs> yeah, that was a that was a direct quote from the Camp Crystal Lake Memories book. He um there there is a lot of behind the scenes where John did not like what was being presented to him. It's just crazy to think about the rollout for this movie, too, where, like you said earlier, Terry, there's no time to really fight about anything and, and get things done because I think it was right. – the pre-production was announced and then seven months later the movie came out or something wild like that. It's a I think it was like six, yeah. It was, yeah, it was well, super, super quick from prepping were, to everything. They were cranking these out. Like I, I went 87 87- – that's the first year, or no, because there wasn't one in 82, but what is it, 82 and 87? No, I take that back. 83 and 87. Yeah, were those were the two years. The two years there were a Friday the 13th movie. Wild. wild. Weird, wild stuff. And, Mac, I know one of your favorite bands of all time, FM, <laughs> uh, they contributed five songs from my favorite album of all time tonight. And m- most of these songs are kind of played in the background during the surprise party that never was. I think I'm not mad ready for the world. That's the name of this this one, of course. <laughs> I think that's played during one of the many scenes in which characters are having sex in a van. I'm Quick glad question you for everybody. <laughs> I'm glad you took are, notes is this on the this same concept. van that people are having sex in, or are these different vans that people have? I want to say it's the same van. Wow. Tough call on those sheets, everybody. I hope they changed them out because there's a lot of sex happening in, that, in those vans. Not that there were were there like 85 rooms in that house. They couldn't just go up and say anyway. That's a whole other story. So, yeah, FM contributes five songs. We got I'm Not Mad, Ready for the World. We've got Magic in Your Eyes, Take the Time to Dream, The Real Thing, and Dream Girl. And these are the most boilerplate titles I've ever heard. Wait a minute. We got two, two, dream, two titles with Dream in it, and this is not This is a Friday the 13th movie? Oh, hey. They're really trying to ape in on, uh, and crawl in onto the uh, Elm Street territory. How about this one, though? I like the feeling of I'm not mad. I'm ready for the world. Great, great title. They've got a wild career, too, if you look at FM. They were a <laughs> Canadian prog rock band that started yep. in 76. And they're still present today. And they're known as what's known as space rock. Uh, and mm. their lyrics are all sci-fi themed. So they're Eddie's favorite band. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. exactly. How did they not, how did FM not record a song called Star Mummy? For the Friday the 13th part. Well, they seven. did. It just wasn't used in the movie. That was track seven on the album tonight. It's important to remember that. Oh, and now there's also... Oh, good. I was just going to say something. I don't really know where we could throw this in, but uh, the opening credits logo and everything, we didn't speak about that. And I have oh, no clue where true. we would throw that in. But what do you because all think about that? Because you don't have necessarily an exploding mask. You've got a mask that's cracking apart. Much like it's kind of a foreshadowing for the rest of this yeah, movie, I guess you could say. You have the the light glowing through the holes, and then yeah, that cracks apart, and then you have the logo. And I guess I was waiting to talk about that uh, because it is, yeah, it kind of coincides with the the first time we hear the real score of the film, uh, which True. is just a a synth drum with murky synths behind it, um, just boring as hell. Uh, <laughs> 
<laughs> I do like the, I, I said earlier I didn't like the trailer intro, the prologue, but I did like the last line where the the people forget he's down there waiting. Yeah, and then it no, goes into the campfire. It goes into the opening. I, I really, I, yeah, I did like that. Yeah, that's the kind of like the campfire aesthetic I liked about that intro personally. But that's I'm definitely in the minority there. Um, yeah, two more songs in this movie that also come from somebody who would have a major presence in Jason Takes Manhattan. And that is, and we don't have to talk about that too much here, but I'll just say Stan Meisner. Uh, his, some more classic 80s titles. Uh, we're talking about the songs Coming Out of Nowhere and Heart of Ice. They make appearances in this movie. So I, I went and checked out some of Stan Meisner's work. Because uh, he wrote, he did a lot of songwriting, did a lot of producing. Uh, one of his big hits was covered, uh, One Chance, was covered by Eddie Money. Eddie Money did a much better version than he did. Of course, did. it's the money, man. To describe his style of music is, it's the kind of music that you remembered your mom having on in the car, but you can't remember any of the artists or the names <laughs> of the songs. It's the most middle-of-the-road, overproduced 80s pop schmaltz you'd ever want to hear, or not well, want to hear. Well, I'll go on top of that and also say it's he, he writes the kind of songs that derail franchises. <laughs> and when we get to Jason Takes Manhattan, that'll be my uh, anger corner. <laughs> if, if you miss Harry Manfredini now, wait until the opening credits for Jason Takes Manhattan. Uh, okay, listen, we've talked enough about music when it comes to Friday the 13th. It's time to talk about the man himself in a section we're calling, we're calling, like we're just coming up with this now, in a section that we call his name was Jason. Did you know that a young boy drowned the year before those two others were killed? The counselors weren't paying any attention. They were making love while that young boy drowned. Okay, so yeah, at this point in the franchise, every movie had a different Jason in it. We're talking about six movies, six different Jasons, and for this movie, John Carl Beekler really wanted to cast somebody he had worked with prior, that we talked about it, the movie Prison, Rennie Harlan's Prison, and he wanted Kane Hodder. And this is from an interview, the same interview from, from 2007 that he gave to Friday13thFilms.com. He said, I insisted on Kane in the role of Jason. Frank Mancuso Jr. didn't like him at first. He complained that he wasn't physically big enough. I explained that I wanted to create a whole new look for Jason, a torn up living dead ghost that inhabited a decomposing body. The makeup effects would bulk him up a bit, and he would also allow for chunks to be missing from his rotting frame. I worked with Kane a few years previously, and Kane proved to be an exceptional talent, a great stuntman, actor, and mime. In order to get Frank to approve of him, I had to shoot a special screen test of Kane as Jason in a makeup test. We did the test, Frank saw it, and he knew what I was going for, and the rest, I guess, is history. Mac, what do you think about Kane Hodder as Jason? Honestly, just in general, because he's kind of the, the Jason that people think of in terms of the mainstream. Yeah, I don't know if this is a hot take. I, I, don't, I don't love... Hodder's take on Jason. He just likes to walk around a lot. Um, there's like the, just that first sequence when Michael's running away from him in the woods. It's almost like Michael is constantly slowing down to make sure that Jason can follow him because Jason, whenever they get to Jason, he's just walking like Michael Myers. Uh, so I don't like that. I don't like the hulking beast of Jason like mm. it just I know that he's like otherworldly now after Jason lives but to me it just 
if anything, I feel like he'd be less of a, there'd be less there. You know, he's like rotting away under the water. And I know that they had to bulk him up to then take away parts of him, but it doesn't work for me. Um, I think, you know, it just as a brute force and, you know, whenever you have to throw someone through a door or through a window or something, you know, like that's, that's stereotypically Jason. And I think that that's done really well. Um, there are certain looks and takes that he does, uh, in the close up shots and things. I know that Beekler said in, uh, Crystal Lake Memories that, um, he's the kind of actor that can, you know, get through all that makeup and just like a look or a turn of the head or whatever. And, 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 and you feel it. And I, I do think that Hodder does a good, uh, you know, that he's good and that he's doing, he's, you know, there is a performance there. I just personally don't love this kind of Jason. And that's the kind of Jason that I feel like we get a lot of going forward, obviously. Um, but, uh, you know, I'm just a sucker for, uh, for part two. Give me that fallible Jason falling off a broken chair. <laughs> you know? With a pitchfork, Terry. What do you what do you think about Ken Otter and, and this and movie specifically? I I definitely have an opposite take. I, I and I think part of it might be because my this was my entry point into Friday the Thirteenth, so my my quick view on the stairs of of watching this was him emerging from the lake, and just the the shot from his back where you see like his skeleton protruding, and he just looks disgusting and he's actually the actors called him stinky Voorhees because his suit stunk the entire time but um i just i think that i think that this kind of took it into a direction that i more appreciate i'm more interested in like the more supernatural aspects of like slasher movies like like nightmare on elm street that's the kind of like my go-to so i think the fact that in here he's he's just like this ugly frog looking beast that just looks like you could pop him and he would just like explode in water because he's been soaking in swamp water for decades i just i i love i love the look of him and also you, i mean you kind of talked on it a little bit but just his I, I i do think that maybe he wasn't filmed very well because a lot of this movie is characters just running aimlessly through the woods <laughs> um like somehow they get out from a building and they're like oh now we're, we're running through the woods again so i i do feel like that there that maybe that is possibly a negative to it but i th th it's always the close-ups like when he's hunting maddie and he looks and his head just sort of turns and it's that moment of like oh shit he's, he really sees her he is able to convince to like convey so much with with the mask off and then when the mask is or with, with the mask on and then when the mask is off his little things like when he's like reserting his his jaw like moving it around or just like the the kind of gasps or the the breaths that he would make when he would be attacked it was like otherwise pretty soundless to just i love the little detail of every time he walks it's like he's squishing his feet are just so squishy this just makes like a sound like he's constantly walking with with wet shoes there's so many little details like that that i just i really love and i think the moment that sold it for me is the one of the final uh, confrontations between him and Tina when he's looking at the flames and he looks back at her like oh Tina you bitch like it's just like <laughs> I had this, just like this, note, this look. <laughs> I had I, I wrote in quotes I wrote oh you when I get my hands on you <laughs> like right it's just you like can this, tell what he's saying oh, there Tina, yeah <laughs> you bitch I'm coming for you and I just I I think it's I, I think it's it's fun. Um, I think it continues some more, sort of the playfulness of of Jason Lives, but um, I, I do think that you can feel like there's an act an actor in there that's that's doing interesting things 
especially when you consider how much prosthesis and how much makeup he had to go through and how he was blind in one eye for most of the filming. Like, I, I think I think it's a great performance. Yeah, Mike Vanderbilt, what do you have to say? I do think that Kane Hodder gives a uh, very good performance as Jason. And, you know, growing up, this became the iconic look for Jason as someone who used to doodle Jason quite a bit in his notebooks at school with the uh, exposed rib cage and everything. And I appreciate that they did, uh, you know, attempt some sort of realism, like what would Jason look like underwater? And I think uh, after he sits underwater for 10 years, 20 years, depending on what year we're saying it is. And, but I just don't like Jason as a bulkier character. I like the scrawnier uh, mad hillbilly Jason of two and three. And to Max point, wouldn't he be more eaten away and skinnier if he had been sitting underwater, if you're going that in, in that vein of like, well, let's make it look realistic or whatever. But this is very much a, you can tell that Beekler is a as a, uh, an effects man. Cause it's very much a special effects man design on Jason. And I'm sure he had a big hand in that. I absolutely hate, the makeup, though, the face makeup on this Jason. I think it's one of the worst in the series. The only one that's worse is part eight. This you is fascinating. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, Barbara Sack was one of us right. He <laughs> looks like a frog. I, I, as I was watching uh, Crystal Lake Memories, I was like, yeah, she's 100% right on that one. They could have, I mean, again, they're trying to take into consideration all the battle damage that Jason has taken on over the years. And while that works conceptually, I don't think it works aesthetically. I want everybody to, to take two seconds and Google Mad Balls. And, <laughs> oh, that's, mad what, balls. and that's what his yes. face looks like. And that's what I just can't. It's just not scary. Even when the, the mask breaks and Tina sees it for the first time, she has little to no reaction. And I know she's under duress and there's a lot going on. But you kind of wanted to scream or something, you know, <laughs> I don't know. I, it's definitely a mad balls face. Here's my take on it. And we kind of talked about this in the last episode because I think Dan thought like CJ Graham was a better, and I think you did too, Vanderbilt was a better, and I guess Mac obviously too. Yeah. CJ Graham was a better Jason and, and Calendar. My thing yes. is this I think Kane Hodder is the best part about seven, eight, nine, and 10. Yeah, and even though those movies are not as good as the first six movies, I cannot imagine saying the same thing if Ted White was in 7, 8, 9, and 10. Saying, oh, oh, Ted White's Jason was the best part. Because I think at this point, it's just a turning in the series, right? Where this becomes a Jason series. Where we were spending a lot more time with Jason. We were seeing him doing all the stalking. And it's like Beekler says, you are seeing an actual performance here. And I don't think C.J. Graham would have been able to convey that. I don't think that Ted White, Steve Jankowitz, any any of the Steve Dash, excuse me, any of the other Jasons could have done this. Maybe Richard Brooker, because he's kind of got that big hulking presence as well. You have to think about that. Yeah, Jason, but I mean, Richard Brooker is a much more hulking presence than even Kane Hodder is. Yeah, I guess I guess I just feel like it's tough because I, I I look at it like musicals, right? Would you rather have if you're watching a musical, would you rather it be a good musical and have the the, the singers be like awful? actors or mm, you know what i'm saying like i don't in this case yeah he might give a great performance in the movie but if the movie's awful i don't want to watch that movie you know what i mean like i'll rather watch a a, a friday the 13th movie that's good where the jason performance maybe isn't up to par 
but 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 uh, what what standard are we giving Jason? All he's doing is just running around the roots. Or every once in a while, we might see a quick clip of him thrusting something into someone. You know, like we don't need. I don't need to know how he's feeling. Yeah, I don't. I don't need a lot from Jason. I guess is my thing. And I think that I do think that Harder gives a good performance in the movie. Obviously, he's definitely giving a performance, and you there's definitely things that he's bringing to the role. But personally, I don't like any of the movies he's in really that much, and so I can't really say that he's like my favorite Jason in that sense. But I don't know. That's just me. Well, it's out of our hands, everybody. <laughs> he's uh basically jason for the next what 14 years until Freddy versus jason which is crazy to think about um something else i wanted to point out that i really didn't think about is i love the fact that you see his like, exposed jaw mm-hmm. through the broken mask and all i could think of was the shark and jaws too where you all see his exposed jaw that's just a, that's a throwaway there's literally no actual official connection there by the way Something well, he does kind of this. do a little Jaws, uh, Jaws kill in this movie. <laughs> oh yeah, with uh, the one. Uh, gosh, what is her name? Uh, oh yeah, Sandra pulls her under. Yeah, pulls yeah, her yeah. under, and you get the like killer POV view of like like uh, would be a shark, and she's fully naked as opposed to Jaws, and you like see everything. Yeah, yeah. And you just real nice underwater, under. real nice underwater photography in that yeah. in that <laughs> sequence. Yeah, very clear, very clear. And it's crazy to think about though, because as we know in Freddy versus Jason, you know Jason's terrified of water. So I'm really surprised that uh, that somehow got past the uh, Ronnie Ewan company. But God bless. Something else. um, Yeah. So Kane Hodder was on fire continuously at the at the climax of that movie for I think it was 44 seconds, which was a then record. Apparently, it's been broken, but I could not find out. I could not Google correctly what the actual record is now. So if anybody knows what the record is for onset movie stuntman on fire, um, deliberately, by the way, not on accident. Please let us know because uh, we'd like to know more about that. And something else very important, we must bid adieu to Shelly's hockey mask that Jason's been using since Friday the 13th Part 3 that's been in every movie since. Um, goodbye. It's been through a lot. It's been through a lot. R.I.P. Um, Never forget. Never forget. <laughs> Don't worry because, like I mentioned, the, the, the MVP hunk from Part 8 would be responsible for uh, passing over a, a new hockey mask. God bless him. All right, so you guys know that I've been trying to lose weight lately. You know, I've been yeah. kind of uh, on the bigger side for most of my life, but I've I've been able to drop a lot of weight because I've been trying to eat healthier. You look good. Th- thank you. you the problem good. is, is Wonderful. I can't cook at all. Like I'm basically I know. just make I've like tasted your food. I don't know if you guys ever heard of factor meals before. Yeah. No. Okay, so factor meals, it's like these easy, ready to eat meals that they'll send to your house. I'm oh, sure you've nice. heard of services that do this yes, type yes, of yes, 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 yes. Where sure. they send food, and it's this. What I actually really liked about factor is it's like it has to be kind of idiot proof for me because I can't cook or do anything but it's like ready in two minutes it literally comes everything together you don't have to like make anything wrap? it's it's all put together in its own thing two minutes it's not frozen which actually makes it awesome oh nice you know the frozen food yeah. it comes like in a box it's like chilled like yeah. with chill the cooling stuff but uh you got all kinds so i did the keto one but they also have like calorie smart protein plus they've even got like so my wife ended up really liking these these like energy shots okay that they put they put in the box that we ordered where she it's literally like just a little shot of different kinds of energy shots that were awesome that sounds amazing was, i always was like i'd see these commercials or i'd hear commercials for stuff but i thought factor meal seemed like something that was really threading that needle and would have been really really perfect for me but dude they had like 
pancakes, smoothies. Who doesn't love pancakes? Dinners and stuff like that. Yeah. So they have breakfast. They got like midday snacks. And I, so I thought it was like perfect. Get it in, get it done, yeah. boom. If you're just looking for yeah. like fast premium options and you don't have to really cook or be able to do anything. Sure. Factor is awesome for that kind of stuff. And I thought the, and the quality of the meals, restaurant quality meals that I just could like heat and eat, dude. So it's not like you're, you know, your frozen stuff you get at the grocery store. So if you guys want to try factor meals, I'd say go for it because it's really helped me out. And I've, I was actually really surprised. All you guys have to do is head to factormeals.com slash badmovies50 and use code badmovies50. That's five zero to get 50% off. That's code badmovies50 at factormeals.com slash badmovies50 to get 50% off, guys. Give it a try. That's half. I know. So we'll obviously be talking about Kane Hodder throughout the rest of this episode, but it is time that we move on to our next category called Dead Fucks. I'm the messenger of God. You're doomed if you stay here. This place is cursed. Cursed. Okay, this might be my favorite part of the episode because in addition to talking about all the characters, we then dive into the... Um, illustrious backstories behind all of these performers inevitably ending up in Days of Our Lives at some <laughs> point in their careers and some other shows that there's a lot of connections with, especially with this movie. There's a lot of crossover in terms of people working together again or just happening to work on similar um, projects throughout the years. Let's start off at the very top. We've got Lar Park Lincoln as Tina Shepard. Terry, what do you think about this performance and this character in general? Um... I think she's fine. I she for for all the characters and for the leading lady, I don't think that she has a whole lot of um personality to be honest. Um but I I do I do think that of all of the final girls that have come before, I think she gets the most um uh, of a character arc um of of sorts with starting out as being like afraid of her powers and afraid of pretty much everything and then by the end of it basically uh, through the death of her mother <laughs> through losing her entire family ends up like coming into her own and and using her powers to defeat her antagonist so i think in terms of like like a character arc she probably has one of the the more well-defined ones but i think that her her performance is just it's it's there mm-hmm. yeah mac what do you think about that yeah and no, i agree i i she's fine I I I feel like they even say, you know, like it, the character was originally this Carrie character and then they kind of just like jumped off from that. So it doesn't feel really like it's very its own or creative. It just kind of feels like a knockoff situation. I think that Laura Park Lincoln does, you know, a good job with what, what she's given. I, I just, I wish that, I feel like even when she has control of her powers, which comes out of fucking nowhere for no reason, all of a sudden, uh, I feel like even after that, it still feels like she doesn't feel like she's in control. She's, she's plays it the same as she did earlier, except for the two second moments where she has to like make a decision to like move that TV across the room or do this or do that. And I, I, so I don't really love that. Um, yeah, I'm not 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 a huge fan of this of this lead or this idea. Hey, Vanderbilt, are you as uh, lukewarm? No, actually, I, uh, I'm surprised. I think she gives one of the better performances of all the final girls within the Friday the Thirteenth series. I think she. I mean, 
we're not comparing this to Robert De Niro and say a film like The Irishman. But never, I, think, I never do that. I think with uh, the script that she's given, with the characters she's given, I think she puts a lot of emotion into it. I think like uh, she doesn't ever appear like she's phoning it in, and I think she's actually a very talented actress. And as far as the character goes, like. I know I refer to uh, Jason Goes to Hell as one of the most imaginative entries in the series, but I think this one has a lot of imagination to it, too, despite the fact that I think that it's squandered uh, throughout the course of the film. But, like, to put a telekinetic girl up against Jason is great. And I think she does, like I said, to double down on that, I think she delivers a great performance. But to agree with what Max said, I do think that we miss out, like, if you're going to make an action horror movie as uh, Beekler said he wanted to do, I think you miss out by not having her have true control of the powers at the end, similar to what Alice does yes. in the Dream mm-hmm. Master. Yeah. Like, we need that we need that Rambo 2 sequence, the training montage, almost, yeah. that, we, that we get in uh, the Dream Master, where she's in full control, and she's doing this of her own volition. She has agency. To compare it to... Uh, the Phantom Menace, the uh, 1999 Star Wars. Movie. Yeah, please specify the year. I don't know what you're talking <laughs> yeah, about. Yeah, yeah, because uh, that would have taken – that would have came out right before this. So, yeah, it makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> well, would, you know what I noticed you know this time around? I didn't anybody talk about it. Here's what I noticed this time around is before she finally comes into her own – and I think, Mac, to go back to your point about it's out of nowhere, I feel like it's kind of like Carrie. It's the straw that broke the camel's back. Where something has now clicked, something so awful has happened that something has snapped into place, and now she's just fully aware of her powers and is in full control. Of them. Because her mother. Anyway, dies. I digress. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, I think that kind of like puts her over the edge, right? Okay, yeah, because yeah, it like I, it I'll get basically destroys her entire family, and yeah, like later on, she's like she went after everything's done. You know, she's crying in Nick's shoulder, saying it's all gone. It's all it's it's all gone. Like she has nothing. Yeah. She doesn't have her her home. Her parents are gone. She has absolutely nothing. And yeah. it's just kind of like release at the end of like I that I think that kind of that realization kind of built up to her power being unleashed, sort of like you were mentioning, like Carrie. But but the problem I have with the middle part of her, not even the performance, but just what she's given to do is that there's a lot of running back and forth between the houses. So much of, aimless <laughs> running. It's just like, Mom, I want to go home, and then I'm going to go back over to talk to Nick. And then, no, oh, Mom, they're making fun of me, and then going back to talk to Nick. Uh, and then we got to get out of here. It's just a lot of just well, that's back, part of and a large, forth, back and forth. You know? there's, that's part of a larger problem with the movie. I think that there's no, there's no movement. There's no direction. It it just kind of meanders from scene to scene. Well, and sometimes it feels like it jumps from like mid-afternoon to 9 o'clock at night. Like like Nick, that's not how time goes. Right out, believe it or not, <laughs> according to this movie, maybe not because I remember when she's being picked on. I feel like it's it looks like it's about two o'clock in the afternoon, and from the time it takes Nick to get over to her house to make sure it's everything's fine, it feels like six hours have gone by. <laughs> like it's just pitch black outside. Well, and also, I'm not sure it, what time it, it feels like a kind of like a cheap knockoff of the dynamic in part four, where the two houses are right next to each other. There's a party going on in one house. You know what I mean? The family's at the other house. So it just felt really not very original. Yeah, it's just kind of like, let's get these people together somehow and let's kill off. Let's kill them off as quickly as possible. I mean, she just put Jason through the ringer. She I mean, let's let's go through this brief rundown of what she does. This doesn't make it. This does make it the action movie that that Beekler wanted it to be, you know, ties him with tree vines, electrocutes him, throws a couch at him. 
throws a potted plant with somebody's decapitated head in it. <laughs> the decapitated, yeah, that's my that, favorite yeah. part. <laughs> you know, that's a great bit, and that's something that you do not see in the USA version. You don't see a close-up of that because yeah. it's been cut down even more. Can you believe that? Collapses stairs, collapses the deck of a house, sets them on fire, blows them up, and then her dead dad drowns him. <laughs> it's like, of course. He looks great, by the way. Even though the alternate ending, he's a little more zombified, but either way, that's a kind of a... I don't know about that ending, but we can talk about that later on. To to wrap up my thoughts on uh, uh, Tina was like yeah. in the Phantom Menace when when Anakin Skywalker <laughs> is flying the Star Cruiser at the end, everything he's doing is by accident. Whereas if this was supposed to be the if he was supposed to be this great pilot, if they would have just made him be a kid and knew how to fly that thing and knew how to blast these starfighters out of the sky, it gives him more agency and it makes more sense. Yeah, agreed. True. No, I, I hear you. I mean. It's a really strange movie, and as much as I thought that part six had the best pacing, this movie probably has the strangest pacing, again, because it's just there's no real sense of time. It just, I don't know, it's it's a very strangely put-together movie. But um, Lars Hart Lincoln, Stone Cold Fox. And there, I, oh, so she's the Stone Cold Fox <laughs> in the movie for you? She's not, I don't know, no, she's not the Stone Cold Fox, but and I think she even looks, she looks even better in the, the Crystal Lake Memories uh it's remarkable. When you look at the cast from all these movies, everybody's aged great. Everybody looks pretty good. I mean, obviously there's exceptions because, you know, we all get older, but I don't know. People are looking pretty good from this movie. Um, Laura Park Lincoln's career, she was on Knott's Landing for years, which was this, wasn't it like a nighttime soap? It was right? a nighttime soap on CBS, I believe. There you go. Like in the vein of a Dynasty Falcon Crest and stuff like that. Yes, absolutely. Um, and... Hey, there's a tie-in for our last episode. She was in Jason Lives director Tom McLaughlin's Freddy's Nightmares episode. It's a miserable life. Oh, how about oh, that? Wow. And uh, oh wait, side note: it, Wouldn't the show shouldn't it should have been called shouldn't the show have been called Freddy Nightmares because it's making it seem like these are Freddy's <laughs> nightmares? <laughs> I'm just looking at it for the first time, thinking what? I'm sure some so of those these, episodes are though, right? Yeah, well, some of them are nice. I'll tell you right now, some of them are real nightmares to watch. I mean, I'll tell you what. Now, uh, who was how about she, that? I saw also that she was in House 2. Oh, yeah. Is uh, she Bill Maher's girlfriend in House 2? I, I don't or know. She, I, th- I think she's Kate in House 2. I can't recall. And that she Which was. Which is obviously a sequel to Sean's coming in. And that she was also in Space Above and Beyond, <laughs> which I feel like we've mentioned was. before. Uh, more importantly, folks, syndicated syndicated uh, television shows from the '90s were very good to Friday the Thirteenth actors. Yes, and listen, here's the big news though: she was also in an episode of Highway to Heaven. Oh God, that's one. Highway to Heaven is basically Christian rock. That's how awesome. That's uh, how radical it is. it is. Yeah, yeah. definitely wonderful. Uh, next person credited as Kevin Blair in this movie now credited as Kevin Spirit as he is the uh, designated hunk of the film as yes, Nicholas Rogers. And uh, it's funny. I, I thought that the chemistry was pretty good, actually. I, I don't understand what they're really talking about in the documentary. I'm not being sincere. I thought that they had some good chemistry. I felt like there was an attraction. I don't know. Maybe maybe hindsight. Maybe because I, I went 20 years not knowing anything going on behind the scenes. I don't know. That's my take on it. No, it seems pretty weak, I think, their chemistry. I don't think he's a very good actor. I haven't, I've seen him in a Jeez. couple things over the years, but I'm not sure what anybody else thinks. I didn't really feel it, but... <laughs> 
I think there was like a lot of not camaraderie on a set between um, Lar and the rest of the cast. A lot of the people seem to have a negative reaction to her that she didn't want to associate with the cast very much. She was always in her room. Um, I think I read that she was trying to hide the fact that she's married, which seemed kind of weird. Um, mm. um, and there's like a, a bunch of little anecdotes about her not being nice to the crew. So I, I feel like that it was probably hard to act against um, for him. I mean, I've not seen anything else that uh, Kevin Spurtis has been in. So I'm not, I don't know how good of an actor he is, but I mean, even in, in the documentary too, he says that on, on this, he, he was like, it's not Shakespeare. I plan to fool around a lot. So like, I don't think, I think a lot of, a lot of the cast thought this was just going to be a fun, a fun uh, show. And in fact, a lot of quote unquote party favors and a lot of like controlled substances were were used and there was a lot of like partying. So I, I just feel like maybe some of the cast might have been phoning it in or deeply over well, from the night's partying. I, and on, on that tip, I think this movie just feels very dour to me. And it does. It's not a lot of fun, especially by uh, Friday the 13th standards. And I think it's like when. You know that an, a band is recording a record, and when you find out later that there was strife within the band, how you can feel that in the record, mm, mm-hmm. it's intangible. Yeah, that, that, that I, might be yeah, where I'm coming from. And I think you can kind of feel that in this movie, that nobody was having a very good time on set. Because um, it was actually, what, did the script say it was called Birthday Bash? Like People didn't yeah. necessarily know what they were going yeah, because into. All the, all the Friday the 13th movies, particularly after the first one, had a uh, had a uh, alternating title, kind of like how well, Return of the Jedi had Blue Harvest. Uh, Friday the 13th Part 6 was shot under the title Aladdin Sane. David Bowie. Yeah. David Bowie one. And I think uh, all the Friday the 13th up until 7 had David Bowie uh, shooting titles. Mm. Interesting. Mac, were you going to say something about... Oh, I was going to ask if anybody here has a picture of their cousin and their cousin's girlfriend in their wallet. (laughs) (laughs) I'll have my wallet. My wallet is basically I mean, obviously it seems like they're very close. So maybe I buy it, but come on. Story wise. Remember he does. Nick gives that speech to Tina about how he was basically a a reformed bad boy. So maybe he stayed with his cousin. Maybe they get, maybe they were kind of more like brothers. I mean, I get it. Look at me giving credit to, to, Anuel Fidello, whatever the person is. Um, I, have, I do have another question about about Nick, though. Hmm. Has a character been shoved by Jason more than this character? <laughs> I don't well, he know. gets pushed three times by Jason in this movie instead See, of just killed immediately. And that's part of the Kane Hodder performance that uh, as I got older and watching these movies, I noticed a lot more. He does do a lot more shoving through the movies that he's in. And if you're that into the earlier films, it feels out of character for Jason. Look, he's been through the ringer. He's been dead. I guess. He's been, he's been underwater yeah. for 10 years, apparently. You know? I like how Frank Mancuso thought that, that he was too short. He's 6'3". Like, how short do you think Kane... I mean, anyway, that's Frank Mancuso's own issues. Well, Kevin Spiritus was in The Hills of Ice Part 2. He was. Uh, sure, and he's also... Days of Our Lives. And for a long time, he yeah. was in Days of Our Lives. And it's, it's funny, one of our listeners tweeted out to us, make sure you mention the fact that he was in Days of Our Lives. <laughs> well, let me digress on Hills Have Eyes Part 2, because it always fascinates me that that was Wes Craven's follow-up to A Nightmare on Elm Street. Yeah, what a wild career Wes had, especially during that time. Especially the 80s. That whole run is really strange, leading up all the way to Scream, like, what, 12 years later. 
Um, something else, though, is he actually wrote and starred in an Amazon series that I'm not sure if it got canceled, but it was a couple years. It's called After Forever. Yeah. Um, which also featured the return of Mitchell Anderson, who was in Jaws the Revenge. He played the Sean Brody who got eaten at the very beginning of the movie. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I didn't realize that. Bad more, movie, pretty good death. Pretty good death. But more importantly, this is a call out to Mac because Mac in a recent Losers Club episode in which they discussed Nightmares and Dreamscapes, there was an episode that starred an actor called Raphael Sabarge, and Mac was not familiar with that actor. I'm here to tell you that Mitchell Anderson was also in a movie called Back to Hannibal, The Return of Tom Sawyer and Huckleberry Finn oh, that we definitely watched growing up and that starred Raphael Sabarge as Tom Sawyer. So there we go. Mac, okay. There's your... Yeah, I've been corrected. Please, Thanks. <laughs> how dare you forget Raphael Sabarge? I, I mean, what are we talking about here? He also played a paramedic in Apt Pupil as another Losers Club uh, <laughs> crossover. Oh, well, there you go. Oh, you know what? He was also... Kevin Blair was in an episode of Quantum Leap that I do remember because it has an, it's an interesting ending where I think Sam is in the body of a woman and he, like, karate kicks her abuser it's very surreal but uh <laughs> quantum leap <laughs> look love quantum leap great show okay next character is mrs i guess it would still be mrs right maybe she still goes by the name long story short mrs amanda shepherd played by susan blue and her wonderful mullet An incredible mullet love job it. by her by the way great just doesn't move the entire movie no matter what's happening even when she's being stabbed through the back the hair is just pristine the entire time. You know, uh, this is kind of returned to form to like what for, um, the final chapter, right? When it comes to the mother character, we haven't seen that since the final chapter. Not a whole lot to say, but <laughs> <laughs> yes, I agree. Yeah, there's a, there's a mother <laughs> involved. Yeah, yes, um, there's a mother here, and she's trusting the doctor. But uh, yeah, I mean, I feel like this is honestly, in terms of all the movies we've covered, this will be the movie with the most. This person was in it. And then they died. There's not. Yeah. <laughs> she doesn't really get to do much in this movie except kind of being that simpering person that's like, oh, the doctor's trying to help you. The doctor's trying to help you through like most of the movie until she gets stabbed in the back, like literally. Um, yeah, I, I I think she's fine. I, I love that she's a queer actress. I think that's great. Um, but I, yeah, she's just sort of there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, her her, her career... I mean, if you look at her IMDb, it's crazy. She's been basically a voice director for every animated oh, TV yeah. series over the last 30 years. I mean, she's done voices for – she's also, she also done voices for, like, Transformers and – I was just about to say. I was just about to say. She does Acri she's from Transformers. Yeah, RC, yeah. RC. One and, of my favorite characters. Uh, the Crusaders. I just felt bad that Dan wasn't on this episode because he's a big Transformers head. <laughs> he would have defended her to yeah. the death. This, this performance. <laughs> like, she, so she's not sweating she's, it, uh, basically. She, she had yeah. plenty of work after this movie. She's honest got great in Transformer movie, which uh, for you playing the Halloweenies drinking game at home, take a shot, as we just mentioned, Transformers movie. That's right. And something else, I just think some people are, are great. Like, you don't see Kevin, what's his name, Kevin Conroy, in actual in-the-flesh performances, right? But he's famous for being the voice yes. of Batman. I mean, there's, right. some people just are great at performing in the recording booth and there's nothing wrong with that because sometimes it doesn't translate the other way either so well ernie hudson famously tried out for the role of winston on the real ghostbusters cartoon <laughs> and lost out to arsenio hall i didn't know yeah. arsenio hall did the voice on that yes he did 
Wow. At least for the first couple seasons. Oh, I wonder if there's going to be another reboot of that series. That's a whole other story, folks. All right, well, let's go on to somebody else who is absolutely near and dear to our hearts on this podcast because we, we've been referencing his work in just about every episode, and that is Bernie himself, Terry Kaiser, as Dr. Cruz, a.k.a. Bad News Cruz, who – it's funny because he – I didn't recognize him in a lot after the year 1994, but I felt like there was a run there of about seven years where he was just such a great bad guy. Even in awful movies like Tammy and the T-Rex, he's given 100%. Oh, that's right. He's, he's great in the movie, oh, totally over the top. He knows what movie he's in. He's also in another awful movie, well, in my opinion, Mannequin 2 on the Move. <laughs> <laughs> Once it's, again, it's, it's over-the-top villain. It is nowhere near as good as the original Mannequin. I mean, some people it have is, said it, it is the Godfather Part 2 to Mannequin's Godfather, but I disagree. Not without a star, but Terry, and Terry Geiser is one of them. Great character actor. So many great episodes of Three's Company as well. So who was he on Three's Company? He would always play uh, a bad guy or a sleazy character. Wait, he played different characters? I'm pretty sure he played. He was like, Jeffrey Tambor was the same way where he would just show up on Three's Company as different characters. Oh, speaking of villains, Jeffrey Tambor. Um, let's, that's a whole other story. Too. Hey, he basically, watching this now, is going full Burke from Aliens, right? Oh, yeah, yeah absolutely. I never thought about that, but th- that had to have been influenced by that, right? It had to be. Yeah, he's um, just the literal worst in this. Uh, the, the constant threats of, of tossing her daughter back in the mental institution. Oh, like, yeah. Just like anything, anything she says, oh, yeah, yeah she's going to go back to the mental institution. Like, that was just this constant, constant barrage. He's um, he's kind of the worst. He's the worst. And in, in addition to all that, I mean, he's also literally discovering dead bodies and, <laughs> and, and finding murder weapons and it's just so adamant on making people think that she's crazy that he's not he's willing to put everybody at risk. So yeah, yeah I, have, you're... I have a question. Like correct me if I'm wrong, I'm watching the movie. He has a scrapbook full of articles about Jason Voorhees in the house. <laughs> yes, yeah. that's how Is they that discover it, yeah. about, that's what they discover Jason, yeah. So was he intending to come up there and resurrect Jason Voorhees? With her telekinetic powers, I'm wondering if he was going to maybe start making her think that that Jason was back, not thinking that Jason was actually back. You know, what I mean, maybe. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, yeah. All right. Oh, check out, right? No, check out. Yeah, they don't really go too deep into that, but that that is interesting. Mac, yeah. I don't remember this, but I uh, I definitely saw Weekend at Bernie's two in the theaters. I don't know if you were with me. <laughs> yeah, I definitely saw it. I, I think Terry Kaiser gives a legitimately great performance in both of those movies, honestly. Oh, he's That's, great. He's, he's, he's terrific. Great. You just want to talk about Bernie. No, I'm talking about Bernie. I know. Oh, I, I think he's great in both roles. I think it's he's great. It's a shame there was never they made, never got around to making that third one. The third one, he would look like Kane Hodder in this movie. Weekend at Bernie's 2 is actually my favorite zombie movie, for the record. I think I did do some joke on Twitter a while ago where I was like, I listed every great zombie movie from every decade. I think the 90s was Weekend at Bernie's 2 or and something. To like be that. fair, Weekend at Bernie's 2 actually brings it back uh, being a zombie to its original voodoo roots that That's you didn't right. see uh, post. You don't see a lot post uh, Night of the Living Dead. That was also the first movie I saw Barry Bostwick in was Weekend at Bernie's 2. <laughs> I, yeah. Right. Okay. <laughs> I saw him at Bray Bostwick for a while. Spin City, obviously a huge hit, starring Michael J. Fox. And terrific, as Brad, terrific as Brad Majors in the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Yes. He, oh, Terry Kaiser, has a great death that was cut because oh. right when Matthew Wacker hits the stomach, we cut away. But it, it's there was many different takes on that, and they looked 
absolutely horrific. He does. It's a shame. He does. Yeah, they even back. have like his. Yeah, sorry. Go ahead. Sorry. I I just I knew that they were talking about how they actually had a shot of like that blade pulling out his stomach and intestines, and mm-hmm. it would have been such a good like comeuppance for him. But yeah. instead, he just sort of what lays back and rolls his eyes back. <laughs> yeah, he does like the weird <laughs> half cross eye thing, which is kind of silly. Yeah. You know, here was something I never thought about till I was rewatching the movie for the podcast was. If Jason drowned when he was a kid, how does he know how to turn on a weed whacker? That's a good point. It's like, how does Michael Myers know how to drive a car? Well, I mean, that's, why, that's why I bring it up. That's why I bring it up because that's that's the same kind of question. I mean, how does Freddie know how to play a video game, like a game, like a like a, a later day <laughs> video game model? He's been dead since the seventies, you know. But he's but, been uh, in people's dreams. So he's been creeping on people. He's been watching. He's been watching the world go on. If we try to reason, like, how can Freddy do this? <laughs> All right, now here comes this is that run I was talking about, folks. Here comes the run of people in the woods that I, I don't even remember why they're there until I watched the movie. I'm like, oh, yeah, this is X's so and so. Okay, so first up, Stacey Greason is Jay McDowell, whose boyfriend is Michael, who, of course, is in Nick's wallet. <laughs> the couple of Nick's wallet. Uh, she is trying to, you know, get Michael to the cabin because it's his birthday, and then she gets it away because she's tired of him complaining. She gets a spike through the neck. She was in Days of Our Lives for three years. <laughs> <Thanks. That's, laughs> well, I mean, does anybody else anything to add about Stacey Greason as Jane McDowell? No no shots fired, but... Uh, you know, just a uh, first kill, I guess, if you're not counting uh, Daddy Shepard. <laughs> I guess it's Jason's first kill in 11 years, right? 11 years have gone yeah. by. Good to get back into it. That's right. Do, do, they, do they explain where he got that rod, that weird spear rod thing? That's it what, looks, like the, sh- it looks what, like the shard from Dark Crystal. <laughs> that's what John Carl Beekler was talking about. He was like, let's not even worry about where he gets all these this equipment from out of nowhere. And Michael, here we go, though. Michael, played by William Butler, who has done a lot of behind-the-scenes work in terms of writing, directing, and a lot of makeup work. Actually, he did some makeup work on this movie, too. Uh, William Butler did. And this guy would be a good interview with a career like this. Yeah, right? Because be. think about this. He also he was in Tom Savini's remake of Night of the Living Dead. He's one of the, I think he's like the, the teen kid and his girlfriend, and you know they blow up in the gas station, whatever. Here's something bad, though. Well, first of all, he also, I think, was responsible. I think he wrote, directed, and produced many Ginger Dead Man movies. Got some. That's great. He was in Leatherface Texas Chainsaw Massacre 3 alongside somebody else in this movie who we'll be talking about at the tail end. And guess what horror sequels he wrote? He wrote two horror sequels from a franchise we've talked about before. As a matter of fact, we talked quite a lot about in the last episode. Two horror sequels that he wrote that we talked about on the last... Is this like Password or something? I feel like, I feel like I'm on a he game wrote, show. I, I know he wrote Return of the Living Dead, uh, Rave to the Grave, and Necropolis. That's the one, the, oh the two, the four and five. God. He wrote Necropolis. Yep. Yeah, he did. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I won't get that time back. I won't get that time back. Peter Coyote. Peter Coyote's high mark. Yeah. On, on, a, on a brighter note, he appeared in Ghoulies too. Oh, the okay. Ghoulies and Watchers and Munchies connections here are unbelievable. Yeah, I mean, he appeared in Ghoulies too, Friday the Thirteenth, Freddy's Nightmares, Night of Living Dead remake, and Texas Chainsaw Massacre Three. But I'll tell you what about this guy. No highway to heaven. <laughs> I mean, what's, what's his problem, right? Yeah. Um, okay, so yeah. Okay. Oh, okay, there we go. Another, another. see, this whole movie, this whole movie. Um, spike through the back. 
which is also cut pretty badly. So yeah. Oh, bye something. Bye. I think I, she's something... that's a vision that she sees in the kitchen, right? Yes. She sees a vision. Of and something I wanted to mention. I think the vision idea is really cool. And I think those two, I think at least that vision and when she sees the mother in the road is really yeah. great. And I felt like they should have done more of that. But I bet, I bet they did. But I'm sure they, it was like, we've got to cut the violence more and more because it's always a death scene, you know? So it's yeah, just sad because I thought that was a really good, that was a really cool idea, I thought, you know? Uh, it's just a bunch of missed opportunities in this movie. Yeah. Next person, here's something about this person. The only credit that she has on IMDb is for this movie. She's got no wiki page. Deborah Kessler as Judith Williams, but maybe has the most famous scene, the sleeping bag slammed against the tree. That's her. She she also has that great line delivery right before Jason. Come on, you big hunk of a man, come and get me. As the way she <laughs> the way she reads it is terrific. Now I'm trying to remember this because every, I, I remember like all the connections. What are their connections? They're just the, chilling. Oh, they, they have nothing in the to do with. They just, have nothing to do with. Yeah, they're kids, just. Right? I just wrote. I wrote down tent kids. <laughs> like I think they're just camping. <laughs> I don't think that they're actually just going camping anywhere. In the woods. Yeah. All right. Well, God bless. Um, that death was definitely pared down. Kane Hodder actually thinks it, it works better as it is in the movie, and I might agree with him. I kind of like it's, it's just that one slam. It's like, oh my god, and then we're on to the next scene. It's, you know? it's very visceral, whereas the constant slamming is almost comical. So yeah. it depends on what you want to go for. Which is kind of like Jason X. They definitely right, go for the comical yeah. aspect of that, right? And her boyfriend, the hapless and haplessly named Dan Carter, played by Michael Schroeder. Uh, another death that's cut down significantly. He gets punched uh, in the back and, and through the other side of his stomach. Uh, and that's where he gets his machete back, right? Yeah, that's where he gets the machete. Oh, and by the way, speaking of Terminator, what does he say to, to Judith before he leaves the tent? I'll be back. Yep. Another Terminator tie-in. Oh, yeah. Once again, no wiki page for him either, and this is the only credit he has. So I feel like they found these two people in the woods. They, yeah, <laughs> they, they did. Yeah. We need another death. Let's yeah. just... We'll buy you a new tent. <laughs> and then bye-bye. Okay. Now, here's somebody... You know, we, everybody didn't really get along with our Park Lincoln. Ironically enough, everybody got along with Susan Jennifer Sullivan, who plays the terrifically named Melissa Ashley Emerson Parr. Parr. Is she the biggest jerk, I'll use another term, of the series? I mean that endearingly. Like, is there a bigger, maybe, what's her name in part eight? But no, no, this, I think, I think Melissa takes the cake. I think she does, yeah. I loved her bitchiness in this. Um, I I really did. It's, it, it, it lends itself to kind of like a queer camp, like aesthetic. I just, I love how she's busy spying on them in the woods like she's so desperate to see if they are like knacking on each other that like she's like hiding behind the trees like she goes through so much just to get this this gay guy's attention it's (laughs) it's it's really uh it's really endearing to me even though um she is like kind of the worst oh she's the worst yeah i appreciate how much assertiveness she has a lot of age oh yeah comes to trying to get laid like, Definitely. Yeah, she says, she says, that. I don't even like you. And she says, liking has nothing to do with it. And I was like, you know what? Sometimes that's the case, folks. By any means necessary. <laughs> I, I appreciate it. But I would say she is not, I think part the girl in part eight is far worse than this one. But as oh, I watch, as I, I think wa- because Melissa has more screen time, she, I, I think that she wins out. Yeah. She affects I, more people, <laughs> you know? Just like as soon as Tina shows up, she already has a problem with her. And I'm thinking, <laughs> you guys are, I mean, 
supposed to, I don't know, they look like they're in their 30s, but I they seem like they're supposed to be in their 20s. I'm guessing early 20s, right? Yeah. yeah. Like, I don't think they're teenagers. Well, yeah, she says, oh, there goes the neighborhood. I'm like, what, because she's wearing like, a sweater? Like, what, what, what? <laughs> like, oh, one hot one hot girl doesn't like the other hot girl. Like, what, yeah. what? The, the true story. Here it is. Um, and you want to talk about the turning of the franchise. I mean, obviously, when, when Cruz dies, we all hate Cruz, right? But that death is so quick. But the ramping up to her death scene, you can just imagine people in theaters cheering when you see his oh, silhouette yeah. in the door. Oh, yeah. And she just says, fuck you, fuck you both. And then you know what's coming. And I can't even imagine the the cheers when the axe just goes thwonk right into her. <laughs> but <laughs> I also kind of hated. It's, it's brutal. I also kind of hated when uh, slasher movies really started to lean into that in the, the back half of the 80s, in the ugly 80s, if you will, where they would create these characters that are there for you to cheer on the killer. It just seems cheap to me. Oh, I mean, and that's definitely, like I said, it's a turning point because I think there are multiple characters in the next one that you feel that way about. Absolutely. You know? There are probably more people, honestly, in, in in part eight that you that you're rooting for Jason to kill than the previous seven movies combined. You know, and I I feel it's writers realized they took all the wrong lessons away from uh, the uh, the original runner to Friday the Thirteenth movies and found themselves you started cheering for Jason and it's easier to write awful characters that you want to get killed than it is to write honest to god friendships uh, on screen that provide a little empathy that a character so you don't want them to get killed yeah i mean that's the that's the strength of jason lives is the likable characters in that movie you know she wasn't in, in a whole lot unfortunately and she wasn't there's a wild thing because in that crystal lake memories there's a brief in memoriam for her yeah she passed away in 2009 but she didn't oh she didn't she didn't no she did not oh. she's actually alive but she's just what? very much off the radar and they got her mixed up with somebody else no there was some she there was some proof that was given she's got like a facebook page or and somebody's second cousin is in that but it's it's confirmed what? she is actually alive yeah wow um Whoa, but man. very much off the radar very much off the radar and she was married to andrew uh, nickel the director from gathica by the way for a long time really and here's here's some more connection here though she appeared in a charles and charles episode called Lost Resort with Eileen Travolta, who was the mother to the actor who played Court in Jason Lives. Wow. And there you another go. guest star in this episode is somebody we'll be mentioning later on. So oh, they're, on the, they're on the same episode? They're on the same episode. We'll talk about that later. Uh, but anyway, I really think she's she gives it her all. I, I, I really like this. This might be my favorite actual performance of the movie besides Kane Hodder, honestly. Oh, and Terry Kaiser, obviously. That doesn't, Terry Kaiser, come on. That's, that's character actor heaven right there. But... Uh, yeah, alive and well. So that's great news. I'm happy I was able to relay that to everybody that somebody is yeah, no still alive out there. It's very rare we could actually say that, right? Actually, they're alive. Next performance is Elizabeth Catan as Robin Peterson. I guess her her character motivation is in love with David. Yeah. <laughs> in Terry, love with David and sort of know. like rivalry with Maddie, her best friend. Like they both seem to want to get with David. That's all they want to do. It's like yeah. it's like Bechdel test hell. It feels <laughs> like Robin just kind of realized at that at the house that she was kind of into David. She's awful friend to Maddie, just terrible, terrible, terrible friend. God, yeah. However, she under calls, I I do I do want to talk about something very important. Just stick with me here. Now I I love Jason Lives. 
but I didn't love how it deviated from the norm. Uh, there's no talking to animals in Jason Lives, and I thought that I know oh, they were trying go. to go. I know yeah, they were trying to go with a more comedic route, but there were no there were no characters that spoke to animals, and I just felt like that was such an intrinsic <laughs> part of the franchise. Um, I agree. So it was such a breath of fresh air to come <laughs> to New Blood and see uh, Robin, who is underused in the film, <laughs> speaking to kitty the cat in the movie um and i was just it just made me i kind of i just it was like a a, it was like it was some it was like a warm embrace and i felt like i felt at home again and i felt like this is this is friday the 13th again i'm ready like let's you know what's going to happen to robin i know Uh, the series is finally back on track and and i got good news for you man because i know for a fact that this trend will continue on of animals talking to humans and Jason takes Manhattan. So get ready oh, for that. I can't wait. You get to look forward to that. Um, yeah, but Elizabeth Catan, again, in love with David. Interesting death scene, right? Because first of all, the death scene that we get is it's hilarious because it's obviously not her flying out the really window. She has some really nice muscular legs flying yeah, out the window. With, with, her haircut looks strange. <laughs> and, yeah, very firm. Uh, we'll just say that. Very firm person flying out the window. And... Originally, though, her death, I think she was chopped in half by like a machete or a sword or something, but it didn't look right. So when they did the reshoot, that they did the reshoot of her actually just being thrown out the window instead. And do we know where that, that was reshot? At the uh, Jarvis house. The Jarvis yeah. house, yeah. How about that? All the way in oh, wow. California. This movie really made the rounds. Alabama to California. And... and uh, uh, Elizabeth Catane, you want to talk about Stone Cold Foxes. She made a career out of being yeah. Stone Cold Fox. Like in such films as Vice Academy Part 6. Another USA Up All Night staple. The Exotic House of Wax. Uh, here's Dr. Alien. Well, here, here we go, though. Everybody knows this one. You ready for this? I'm ready. We all know the famous, excuse me, the infamous garbage day scene from Silent Night, Daily Night 2. <laughs> right? It is, it is Billy's lusting after her that starts the whole thing off. She oh, is wow. in that. She is the the actor in that film that. Uh, and she says, I remember when she sees the the, the evil ex boyfriend getting killed. She says, "I'm not kidding." She says, "Eek." <laughs> <laughs> and then Billy kills her and goes on a spree. It's one of the movies. You want to talk about Terry? You want to talk about movies utilizing flashbacks? I mean, has everybody here seen that movie? I have not. No. I did a count. I think I think the movie's 90 minutes long, and 50 minutes of it are flashback from the first movie. Oh, damn. It's oh, literally wow. just an excuse to make another movie and get people to go see it. <laughs> anyway, it's a great movie, though, in terms of how bad it is. You got to check it out. It's it's unbelievably inept. It's like yeah. the lead performance is perfectly bad. It's, it's amazing. Speaking of David, we got John Renfield, great name from horror, as David Peabody. And I'll tell you what, not a lot to do here, but it is established that this this is a bad boy. Oh, <laughs> this yeah. guy he likes to smoke. Rolls his own joints. He's, he's running into lamps. He's choking on beer. I mean, where does this guy begin? Where does he end? Right? I will and that's say the, that's the... he does have a um, – there's a really, really good sequence, um, his death sequence. Uh, not necessarily yes. what happens to him, but when he walks in the room yeah, and I the lightning you. strike and you see Jason in the corner, I think that's in one the of the best – uh, that just that reminds me of you know like part two when you see him kind of slowly rise in the same room, 
uh, I really like that. And there's just, you know, obviously that's all you get in this film uh, in terms of that kind of uh, suspense or horror. But uh, I really like that moment. It's yeah, actually probably my favorite shot in the in the franchise, to be perfectly honest. I just I love the low key nature of it. Um, yeah. Wish that they had done a little bit more to build like suspense from there. But it was probably like I just I love that move, moment. Even watching it this weekend, I was like, oh, yeah, that's it's such a. A cool reveal. Yeah, I almost missed. I that. like it too. It's, I feel like it's the exception to the rule for the rest of the movie, which is literally just watching Jason walking around, right, <laughs> approaching yeah, people. Yeah. Even even like even in that scene, once the lightning flashes, we literally see him walking up to the fridge and stabbing Dave. Yeah, you know? it's so mechanical and yeah. Uh, Vanderbilt, I know you've been waiting all episode to talk about David Peabody. Anything to add? Which one's he? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Now, I will say he is the one that actually is able to uh, have sex appropriately. Like none of the other characters tend to like they just sort of mash their bodies or even like Eddie is is wearing like his underwear. So like they're not yeah. nothing is going on. It's, like he's the one that actually gets to have some decent sex. Well, he's like instead of because, yeah, you're right. The other movies, people are either bouncing or just like falling upon people <laughs> where he's actually like thrusting. So, speaking know? of sex, though, is this the most simultaneous sex that happens in a Friday the 13th movie. I'm trying to think. Even at the same there's, time. Or... There's a stretch where it seems like there's three couples yep. engaging in coitus. Yeah, because we have the van sex. That, yeah, that van gets van, used like van crazy. Kate, yeah. and then you have Melissa and yeah. Eddie's whatever is happening in that. Oh, yeah. And then, yeah. <laughs> wow. And then they're all dead. <laughs> Congratulations. <laughs> okay, next. Speaking of Eddie, Jeff Bennett who was in that same Charles in Charge episode, by the way, oh. as uh, the, Melissa's acting out, right? He is this movie's Ned, right? He's the kind of nerdy, he's just, I don't know if, he, I don't know if anybody picked up on this, but he's an aspiring sci-fi writer. Oh, yeah. He's anybody picked up on that? Rejected by so many science fiction magazines. Oh, I love yeah. how. If you can handle <laughs> Melissa's rejection. Yeah, and I love I was, how Nick introduces them. He's like, oh, our resident writer. Like, that's like the thing to be ashamed of. Like, <laughs> <laughs> what a loser like what a, what a and jerk he's, i'm gonna say uh he's the hunk oh you're going with with jeff bennett's eddie kelso as i think huh. i think if for being the the geek of the movie i think he's very attractive and he he has one of my favorite li- another one of my favorite lines the king tut rises from the tomb well star mummy <laughs> and star mummy dude i feel my favorite me and my sister uh when we were younger, when we saw it, we were just really tickled by both of those uh, delivers. Yeah, but you know, he my favorite line in the movie about taking a cold shower because he has a date with the soap on a rope. I mean, I just I love I love that particularly <laughs> yeah, since your name's the actor. Yeah, yeah exactly. Right. I mean, the actor is gay, and just like oh. that whole that whole thing, it just uh, yeah, I just I I I love the kind of like hint at queerness that that comes in from that line because there's there's so many little tiny moments in this in this movie where it's like you can almost read a line as being like a double innuendo of their real life and i this this whole like playing on on the the soap on a rope bit i i think is is fantastic well it's kind of like finding out later that lincoln and spiros didn't get along right Right. so now you go back to with fresh eyes it's the same thing here if you know the background behind everybody in the movie i think you might pick up on a lot more not just subtext but just plain text Mm. that's going on in the on screen you know yeah, yeah, and he actually had my favorite interview section of the, uh, at least of the book part of Camp Crystal Lake, because he talks about how 
um, he wished he could have had a lot more fun on set because he wasn't really looking at his sexuality at the time because mm. it wasn't something that was discussed. He, and he brings up that like the 80s, you had one per gay person on TV that was Mr. Furley on Three's Company, and he wasn't even really gay. And he says it took him an additional two years to finally come out. And he had a little fling with Bill Butler, William Butler, um, oh. <laughs> apparently afterwards. Oh, and, oh that would have been fun on the set. Hell yeah. Yeah, he said we saw each other a couple years after the movie at a party and we had both just come out of the closet. And I remember one of the reasons it was because I was like, if Kevin Spurtis is gay, then I am, too. So it's like this little <laughs> this little thing where it's like I, you can kind of see how much the people I mean, we, they, people talk about it now, especially in, in the documentary about them being out. But most of them weren't out during this filming in, in like a professional sense. I'm sure mm-hmm. their friends knew and I'm sure they knew. But like. It was a scary time to to be out, and even even going back to what Kevin Spiritus he had said in in that interview that I was listening to on Friday the Thirteenth, he was talking about how uh, we were told lady men aren't gay, so like it was this kind of fear thing that everyone was trying to hold on to, um, all the all of those young actors trying to make a go at it because they didn't have anyone to see that was doing it. Yeah, because we have a lot of younger listeners on this episode, and obviously things have gotten better, but they're still far from perfect, right? And I remember even growing up, like the first like, mainstream out character played by a gay man that I can remember was like my best friend's wedding. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, and that exactly. was that was 10 years after this movie came out. Yeah. Where it's kind of like, oh, look, it's and, and they're just like everybody. And it, it, yeah, it's just I mean, that's crazy. To be about film history, you know, on, OK, on there you go. Screen, yeah. To be perfectly honest, outside of like. In terms of like a a gay person portraying a gay character, it was probably one of the first times that I I saw myself in a movie. Um, And it it was always the like it it was always the movies where it was so weird because I would find myself attracted to movies like A Nightmare on Elm Street, uh, Freddy's Revenge. And at the time, not really realizing why that is. And it's always looking back on it that you can kind of see some of the queer themes of of that or of like Fright Night that of these movies that like I really I really dug that. I never really realized why until later. Yeah. Which is why you didn't have a similar reaction to, you know, like Jason takes Manhattan. <laughs> it's, just like, <laughs> it's just slightly different, slightly different vibes in that particular movie, I guess you'd say. Yeah. But, um, they, but speaking of Freddie though, um, he also appeared in an episode of Freddie's nightmares. Yeah. Oh yeah. If you can believe it. And the episode <laughs> he was in was directed by Ken Wiederhorn, who directed, Shockwaves and Return of the Living Dead Part Two. So, oh. goes all the way back to Tom Matthews. I'm also though not a huge fan of the Eddie character though, because he goes through Michael's presence and opens them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what a but jerk! He does, what a he jerk. does get to find the penis enlarger. <laughs> you know, what I was thinking before the next shot. I thought there. his last moments on Earth was was him holding a penis enlarger <laughs> and then being decapitated by Jason. Like what a what a way to go. There's but so much he's actually holding something so else in his crib. hand. Yeah. His death, by the way, cut down. Um, oh, yeah. You actually see his, the machete really go through his neck originally. And, and he, is a, he is the aforementioned head in the potted plant I, that gets tossed I, I, to I Jason. Ask, that's one of the silliest, funniest gags in the movie when the, the Tina sends the potted plant going at Jason and the head is still in there. I love it. Well, another twist on this character, though, is he's also kind of a jerk because he participates in that prank oh, of um, yeah. Tina yeah. being crazy with the, the fake straitjacket, which is a, a sub, what is, what a work of subversion by the filmmakers to make him also a jerk in addition <laughs> to being in her. They made every character just a little bit of a jerk in this movie, yeah. I think. 
you're, yeah, let's let's get Jason going here, I guess. Um, next character, sure, uh, Heidi Kozak as Sandra Deer. And there she's staying at her boyfriend's house or her family, her boyfriend's family's house on the lake. That's that's this character. And we mentioned it earlier. I mean, she drowns in the middle of Camp Crystal Lake with all those freaking alligators probably <laughs> prowling around at night, which you could I, I hope she got compensated well for that, by the way. I mean, at least they had the 80 year old gator hunter that was yeah, on set. <laughs> die at any moment who's probably like changing out his spittle can you know i love um, i do love that sequence uh where you see because you rarely see jason doing things with bodies post-death and i really love just watching him drag her muddy body oh, through, yeah. through the you know back into the the, the forest and I, that's kind of like a weird thing that I don't i don't feel like they normally do that you know usually you just see the body later on somewhere else but uh, I, I actually thought that was pretty pretty good. And she and her boyfriend, obviously, they christen that van. We're presuming that they're the first couple that has sex in that van. Yeah, they do because um, she loves the beautiful size of his uh, his wallet. That's right. <laughs> this was this was around the time of Wall Street too. I think everybody has to remember he was probably a stockbroker. <laughs> you, know? you, you know, he probably was though. He seemed very very preppy, right? Oh, very preppy. Sweater oh, over yeah. and like the good lord. It, uh, not, not a lot of salty there. And listen to this two-year run for Heidi Kozak and the horror community. Well, actually, I'm sorry, Vanderbilt. I know you once again were dying to talk about Heidi Kozak. Let's let's hear it. Which one is she? <laughs> <laughs> we got to go for Vanderbilt. I need, you, I need you to chime in here because here we go. I have some questions for you. So in 1987, she played Sally, who's the drummer in the and in the and the the all-woman rock band Slumber Party Massacre Part Two. Absolutely. Co-starring a new beginning actor, Juliet Cummins. And in the '88, she did this movie. And then in '89, she is the obnoxious rich girlfriend in Brian Yuzna's Society. Oh, society. That's a pretty good run. That's uh, <laughs> to get three kind of iconic horror films in your in your resume. You want to talk about a pretty good movie that gets elevated incredibly by the last 20 minutes? Everybody watch <laughs> Society. Like, that is crazy mm-hmm. good. That that's so good. And let's let's keep tying. Mac, let me ask you this question. The star of Society is Billy Warlock. Who is his father, and what connection does that have to do with our podcast? I am drawing a blank. Oh, can I can I take a guess? Go ahead. Is his father Dick Warlock? Correct. And Dick Who? Warlock was. The, he played Michael Myers in Halloween 2. Correct. And that also Billy correct. Warlock cameos in Halloween 2. He's one of the two kids who basically say Ben Tramer's drunk and he went missing. That's Billy Warlock as well. Good career. Nice little two-year run. That, that'll Basically, that two-year run has her set for horror conventions for the rest of her life. And I mean that sincerely. Like, congratulations. Like, you, you can get some money off of that. You can make a living off of that. So, good job. Good job by Heidi Kozak. Next up. And I have a question for everybody here. I couldn't find the answer. Is Diana Barrows as Madison Maddie Paulson? It was, was she related to Dana Barrows? No clue. Who was the actor who died really young who was in National Lampoon's European Vacation? You know what I'm talking about? What? I have no, no idea. Oh, never mind. That was Dana Hill. We'll move right along. <laughs> Dana Hill. <laughs> I thought they were sisters. Anyway, so here's a question I have for you. Is this the first "quote unquote" nerdy woman in the franchise who is not like the "quote" unquote, like the final girl? I think I, I think you're onto something there. 
I'm thinking about the earlier name. I can't think of. I think this might be the first case. I don't. I don't know about all that, but uh, she gets the Stone Cold Fox Award for this one. Oh, I, out of nowhere for Mike Vanderbilt, Diana Barros as Maddie. As I like her attitude. I like her moxie. She got she, spunk. She, she does, doesn't let anything hold her down. She does have. It's a very she's all that moment, right? Where it's like, oh, I take off my glasses. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> she kind of has the same hair though as Miss Shepard, so I wasn't really into that. Oh, that made me more into her. I agree. It's even bigger. <laughs> I'm with you on that one. Uh, here, uh, tri- trivia for you, uh, Justin. Was she or was she not in an episode of Charles and Church? I got some news for you. She was absolutely in an episode of Charles and Church. Whoa. Are you just saying? And that? guess what else she was in? <laughs> No, she was. I swear to you, she was an episode of Charles in Charge. Look it up. I'm telling you, she, she was in Charles the, in Charge. She plays the pushy co-ed in the 1988 episode of the Scott Bale classic uh, television show Charles in Charge. I mean, where that, auction is? That goes second to like the X Files home episode for me in terms of great <laughs> television episodes. And she was wow. also in an episode of Freddy's Nightmares. But anyway, listen, this character has. I feel extremely bad for her because obviously her only close friend there sucks. Mm. <laughs> you know? All these people suck. All everybody, suck. <laughs> everybody at this house sucks. Well, when you have Nick basically telling uh, Tina, "Is like, oh, I'm not friends with any of them. I'm just here for my for my uh, cousin." I mean, it's like, yeah. And, and then cousin, she's like, "Your cousin?" And he goes, "Yeah, this cousin." Sounds, he pulls out his wallet. His cousin sounds like he kind of sucks too. Yeah, it really does. Yeah, his cousin's <laughs> friends kind of suck. Question: uh, Is this one of the biggest? Casts. There's so many campers and vacationers. It's so large. Like New New Beginning has got to be more, though, right? I think New Beginning has more. Does it really? <laughs> oh, it has to. Think about all the people that you see for just five minutes, and then you got everybody staying at the house. I know, and, oh my god! Oh there's my so many gosh, people. In that. This is just. I, 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 well, hey, I do have something to say about her death scene. I think that there is some suspense built up here. When he stalks her into the shed. I love this, the shed scene, to be perfectly yeah. honest. Oh, uh, I think and that's where I think you start to see some personality in um, in in Hodder's Jason, the way he stalks through it, the way he his, he turns his head. I know it sounds kind of stupid to say, but like just the way he like <clears throat> is is hunting her through this very quietly. It just like I, I think it's a that's actually probably the only really suspenseful moment in the movie it, for me. I agree. It feels like a real throwback to like Friday the 13th Part 3. It yes. feels like the most traditional Friday the Thirteenth kind of sequence, and I really mm. dig it. And I, I, I like seeing uh, Maddie running around in those white heels. That's just something I'm into. Like that's something I like. Uh, <laughs> we don't need to talk about it. It's we'll the equivalent it. of Sandy and Grease There's transforming and then being murdered, <laughs> like at, at the fair, you know. <laughs> um, now I was a little confused about her motivation. Like, why did she leave the house to go find David? Did she think David was out in the woods? Like, she's like. David, in this movie. are you out here? Are you out here, David? Is that you? Like, who do you it think is out like, there, bitch? It feels like they started filming all this, and then she probably took a moment like, wait, why am I out here? And then he says action, and she's like, oh, well, I guess we're going through with it. <laughs> I guess I'm looking for David. <laughs> the associate producer is not getting along with John. I don't want to question anything. I don't want to make him so look at that stoner D. Uh, and, well, I remember this actor also, though, as the opposite. She was like a very funny best friend in My Mom's a Werewolf. Anybody ever see that movie? Yeah, no, I knew I saw her in something thing. else. Oh, I can't believe... I'm surprised you, none of you have seen this. No, I've John, seen John Saxon. Okay, there you go. John Saxon. No, I've seen, I've seen it. John Saxon. Yeah, I've seen it. Yeah, I yeah. want to see this. I've never yeah, heard of yeah, this you, movie. This might be up your alley. Check the, you, 
John Saxon? Oh, jeez. Oh, I, that poster is doing it for me. It's hilarious. It, it's a pretty funny movie. That was also on USA all the time when I was younger. But she gives a good performance in that. Uh, see, my problem and, is that I grew like up a, without cable in the house. So, like, I never got ah, to see any of these movies that, like, I would have either missed in the 80s. Like, none of them were – because all I had was, like, the, the three big TV channels. So You were able to watch I, Falcon Crest, though, with uh, – and Knox Landing with some of the actors <laughs> in this. <laughs> That was how I kept up with my horror news. <laughs> That's right. It's like, oh, this person allegedly was in a Jason movie. Oh, something else important, and I'm saying important, and I mean it, is yeah. that Diana Barros was also in the film The Adventures of Ford Fairlane, directed by... Ray Harlan. Director of... Uh, Nightmare on Street Part 4. And featuring uh, Robert Englund in a cameo role. And the oh. director of Driven, starring Kip Pardue <laughs> and Sylvester Stallone. Uh... Okay, our next character here is somebody else whose death was also um, brutally cut down. And that is Larry Cox as the Wall Street Money Never Sleeps Russell Bowen. Uh, it's his uncle, uh, the cabinet they're staying at. And his machete through the face. If you watch the uncut footage, it's just it's oh. so good. Yeah. So good. If it was included in the movie, that would probably be a contender for my favorite death in the yeah. movie. And everybody out there, you can find these on YouTube, or you can—they're all also featured in the Crystal Lake Memories doc that's currently streaming on Shutter. No free ads. Um, he, by the way, he also played David and Heather's. I can't remember that character. Is he like a line in Heather's? Anybody remember no David clue. from Heather's? Yeah. No idea. He's properly credited. I, I mean, I have to rewatch that. Look, I love Heather's, so it's not gonna be a problem to rewatch Heather's, but. Trying to figure out who he was. Um, I actually kind of liked how. Um, I mean, this 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 is such a stereotypical character, just in terms of everything he represents. Like he, like I said earlier, is like the the preppy guy. Um, throws the football around. It's very roomish, in a mm -hmm. way. Like, and not a lot to add, folks. I don't know Vanderbilt. Off, I know, off, I, you've been dying his, to talk about this guy. His so, his, his costuming in this is. Everything that I hate about the late 80s. <laughs> it's just like, very bright colors. You know? It's all the pastel. like Because this is, like, when people think of the decades, like it, like the 90s weren't all grunge. Like there was a two-year period where the 90s were grunge, but you had a lot of hair metal hangover. And then towards the back end, it was Limp biscuit and, uh, you know, low-rise jeans kind of style. Like the late 80s, this Paula Abdul uh, ultra day-glow neon era is like the uh, one of the ugliest parts of any decade i it's, think yeah it's, and it's on full display in this movie it's preppy chic although yeah. i will say in terms of style i thought dr cruz's uh suit at the very beginning was pretty cool pretty so dr. pretty cruz modern got, dr cruz has that very good like mr autumn man kind of look <laughs> <laughs> i'm surprised he wasn't drinking like a frap waiting for yeah. the shepherd family to show up on the front lawn just, just hang out on the porch watching the leaves fall glancing Mac into the Mac, anything to add about Larry Cox, who's not related to Tony Cox, by the way? Nope. Two different, two different uh, relatives. I'm, I'm, um, I'm raring to talk about Ben and Kate. <laughs> well, we are. That's next. Craig Thomas is Ben McNeil, who we learn, stressingly, is having some relationship issues with Diane, his girlfriend in this film. But do they ever you say want to talk what about? Yeah, because I think she had gone out partying the day before and didn't didn't spend time with Kate. I think that that was a major issue. Well, he was he went out with Eddie and this is oh, one there of we go. the yeah, so like cuz there's that line early on where 
where Eddie is like talking about throw throngar or something like that. And he's like, well, Ben would know. And, and Ben just sort of like is quiet. And then you find out later when the girls are talking that, that he, she got stood up, which I find oh. again is one of those little tiny looking back at it. Yep. Is, is such a fun little wink um, because both, the, the, those actors, the actor that played Eddie and, and the actor that played Ben are gay. And there was so much hanky panky going on on the, on the set that I feel like that that probably was a, a little bit of an in-joke. I also I like, like Yeah, I thought about the same thing. Yeah. In the, he uh, spent all this time with you. Yeah, I also like in the Crystal Memories when they're interviewing Craig Thomas. He says, uh, for some reason, I don't want to have sex anymore. I want to find Michael. And then he looks at the interviewer like, hello. I want to go to the woods and find Michael. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's pretty That's great. a good bit. Um, like his head crushing scene, if you look at the the uh, the uncut footage, is just unbelievably brutal. It's oh, like slow it's so motion. Gross. God, yeah, that's that might have been the best death if, if we got to see that uh, cleaned up and, and put back in the movie. But... You know, let's. You know what we should do? Let's let's be awful people. You know how Gene Sisko gave out Betsy Palmer's home address? <laughs> let's find out the home address for the people who were on the MPAA board oh, <laughs> during God. this time. And say, how dare you ruin this movie? Um, his girlfriend, Diane Almeida, is Kate Pataki. And by the way, also in the Adventures of Fort Fairlane. How about that? Huh. Um, they're kind of they're like. They're a one-two combo, right? Because I don't think they're even there the first night, right? They don't show up till the second night. I'm not right? sure where they came from. Who are they? <laughs> he just sort of like comes down downstairs for breakfast. Yeah. <laughs> it's I almost like yeah. it's almost like he went out with with like Eddie, and then Eddie brought him home. It's kind of how it comes like, across. Like, why are you coming back at seven o'clock in the morning? Where were you? And never answered. She does have I, a great death that was also cut back. That would have been really yeah. effective too with the party horn. You kind of get, you kind of hear the horn. I love the toot. Yeah, but it was a little more sustained in the uncut, and the uncut death too. But uh, um, what can I she doesn't really get? The, she doesn't. I'm sorry. Uh, no, I was gonna say those laughs like that with the horn and with the sleeping bag. They just land better in a less dour movie, I think. Like Jason lives, right? Yeah, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, no, I mean they're kind of like a one-two punch. I feel Ben and Kate, they're. Their performances are so intrinsically tied together. I'm over here talking about it like it's Gallipoli or something like that. Yeah, no joke. <laughs> Peter Weir, what he was trying to do with Mel Gibson. Um, well, she doesn't really get a lot to do in the movie. Like, here's yeah. a shot of her grilling skewers. Here's a shot of her getting be, being upset with Ben for going on a date with Daddy. Like, those are like the scenes that that I that stick out to me. And then her getting toot in the eye. But and then that's about it. The um the abrupt end of of sex in the van. And the right, same right. van, the, the sex van. <laughs> um, that's a wrap on her. Okay, let's let's get to these next two and the final two characters of this movie. Jennifer Banco as young Tina, who most notably is a little creepy girl member of the Sawyer family in Leatherface, Texas Chainsaw Massacre 3. Yeah. I don't know if anybody remembers that. Which also obviously stars the actor who plays, um, well, I think Michael in this, right? I think I mentioned him earlier. Has anybody ever seen the alternate ending to Leatherface, Texas Chainsaw Massacre 3? Nope. I've never seen that one at all. It's not that good of a movie. I it's tried, not. I tried revisiting it because I thought, well, maybe I, I missed something when I watched Because yeah. I watched it very young. And it's, man, what a drag. It's weird. The alternate ending is pretty good because the, the, other, the ending we get is, is more of like a happy ending. I'll just say that much. Movie's not that good. Terrific Ken trailer. Ken in it. 
Ken Forey's in it, and so is Viggo Mortensen. Yeah. Young Viggo Mortensen. Terrific trailer, too. Yes. That's the Sauce family trailer, too, I think. Yeah, the, um, uh, the Excalibur one. Yes. Very funny. Oh, I remember that trailer. Uh, I used to fantasize about seeing that movie when I was a kid because of that trailer. That was another classic. Uh, you you lucked out. Box, you, you're not missing said, <laughs> Yeah, keep keep your keep your happy memories. <laughs> uh, okay, the next character is the character that really cost Terry a chance to bond with his family. I think is uh, Tina's father, played by John Autran. A lot of TV work. You won't believe the two shows he appeared on. There's no way you'll believe it. <laughs> Uh, well, I know for one, it is not Charles in charge. He's not Charles in charge, correct? But he was absolutely in Days of Our Lives and Highway to Heaven. John Ultram, oh, God. God bless him. He, although there's a, there's kind of a Charles in charge connection here because he did appear in Welcome Back, Cotter, <laughs> because, and as we know, John Travolta's sister is Eileen Travolta, who was in Charles in Charge. Thank you very much. And Ron Polillo, who starred on Welcome Back, Cotter, appears as Hawes and Jason Lives. Correct. Okay. I'm going over my notes. I think I don't have anything to say about the three ambulance drivers at the end of the film. <laughs> so we can safely. <laughs> I, nothing to say about the ambulance drivers, but we do get a glimpse of a 1972 Pontiac Superior 54 ambulance and a late 70s Dodge B series tradesman. What do you think happened to all those ambulances? They just burn them down? What happened? I think they're probably in a barn somewhere. Oh. Rest in peace, ambulances. Wow. Look, we have talked so much about the human beings in this movie. Let's talk about the magic. <laughs> How lame is this? <laughs> Let's go to our next category <laughs> called Great Graphics. <laughs> what do you know? A beat my score. <laughs> you know, a number of people are credited as kind of like the lead effects people on this. you got mechanical effects supervisors, makeup effects supervisors. But I do still see this as like John Carl Beekler's work, right? Don't you, isn't that who you think of when you think of the makeup in this movie? I, I think you're a fool if you think that he didn't have, I, actually, I think he probably spent more time worried about what was going on with the special effects makeup than worried yeah. about pacing or direction or performances. But that said, the kill scenes in the unedited form are some of the most visceral. Uh, and maybe had they been in the film when it came out in 1988, would have that same kind of uh, memorable quality as the kills from the early films in the sequence. But as it stands, it just kind of is middle of the road. There's nothing really interesting about a lot of what the special effects that made of the movie. That said, the Jason design is certainly memorable with the exposed rotting flesh. I, and we discussed earlier, I don't like the, the mask, but a lot of the telekinetic gags, I think play really well mm -hmm. throughout yeah. the film. And they're not, they're not intricate. They're very simple. I think it's just a lot of wire work, but I think that's some of the most memorable stuff, particularly during Tina's final showdown with Jason. Terry, what do you think about the effects that we get to see in the movie, even though a lot were obviously cut out? Yeah, so touching back on on what you said about um, Beekler, I, I, I do think that's probably why he was hired, was mostly because they thought they could get a two-for-one as a director and also someone that was doing a lot of special effects and mechanical effects. Mm -hmm. And 
I, I know I, I also touched on it a little earlier. I know that he wanted to he knew right, right away that the MPA was going to cut his film. So he wanted to have all these crazy dynamic over the top mechanical effects in his movie so that he had something to fall back on when all the gore was was <laughs> was non-existent. Um, I, I think that this one in terms of the the big mechanical and or um, explosive type practical effects, I think this one kind of stands out of the earlier Friday the 13th. I mean, from the the roof coming down on Jason to even the opening scene with with the dock that's like falling apart and the actors spilling into the water or I mean hell they blow up a fucking house like literally huh. blew up a fucking house in this movie um I think that it it definitely is trying to kind of one up the maybe more special effects and like wild inventive practical effects of like the the uh, Nightmare on Elm Street franchise that was happening at the time yep I do feel like this movie kind of had a chip on its shoulder in terms of like being the the less performing of the franchises at that time and wanting to kind of up that ante with the over top effects that unfortunately some of them were were vetoed. Like I, I remember in particular one section of the Camp Crystal Lake memories talking about how Tina's dad at the end, he had created this whole mechanical head that was eyeless and had teeth and flesh clinging to it and wanted this ghastly vision to come up. But Barbara Sachs said, nope, too monstrous for this picture. So they had ended up tossing some mud on the poor actor to pop up in it. So there's like all those things that I kind of wish would have been in the movie. But in terms of what is in the movie, I think I think the last 15 minutes of of the big giant Carrie versus Terminator-esque battle um, have some of the the more explosive and fun um mechanical and big time explosive effect, special effects of the series up to that point yeah mac isn't it interesting how when you look at a lot of the special effects used in this movie with all the wiring and like the couches flying around and, and houses collapsing that seems infinitely less dated than a lot of the special effects you'll see in a, like a movie from 2004 right because they probably would have just yeah. used cgi yeah, you know, I mean, I think for the time, it, all the effects are done pretty well. I mean, you, you always want that potted plant or that couch to move a little, little bit faster. Um, it doesn't seem like it would do that much damage. It just kind of floats through the air towards the towards Jason. But, um, you know, all that stuff is very fun. I, I You know, that, that, that explosion is mammoth, the house, when it goes off. And I know that they said <laughs> yeah. something went wrong or... Uh, they, or they, they prepped it too well. Uh, it just kind of just all, it, it's like insane. But, um, doesn't the house in four also explode? No, no, they didn't. They didn't just build the house, the second house to explode. They just had to build no. the second house. Yeah, I think that's right. Okay. Fourth. No, this is the only uh, house well, explosion you know, I can think you know. of. Welcome to the uh, welcome to Crystal Lake. This is your Mandela effect. Everybody remembers. I know. Yeah, seriously. I've seen all these movies too many times. Uh, But yeah, ultimately, I agree with what everybody's saying. I I I think that there is some interesting and fun fun effects that happen. I'm not thrilled about it because I don't think that it should live in this universe. Just you know, you want that stuff? Go go watch Nightmare. You know, like it's just not that franchise, and uh, just not a big fan at the moment tommy jarvis stuck a spike in a rotten corpse and it was reanimated by lightning i mean like that point we're yeah. like okay anything goes now like that's, that's why a lot point. of stuff doesn't bother me as much i think and i do think this is the best jason design period um the attention to detail really? the, i mean the kneecaps the exposed rib cage 
that exposed jaw. I'm not saying his face. I'm saying like the overall look of him. I, I, I love the way he looks in this movie, especially when you mm. think about what happens in part eight and his wardrobe in part eight is he's like, it's like all the, all the uh, cloth has been reattached somehow. <laughs> like he's totally, <laughs> it's like not one piece of flesh exposed. It's so weird, but I love the look of him in this movie. And, um, yeah, I really didn't talk about that much in the earlier, but while I'm not that high on how he looks in his face with the frog-like looking creature, I mean, I still like the performance that Hodder gives through that makeup, like with the jaws clenching and kind of going back and forth in anger. Like you're still really getting mm-hmm. something out of his face. And that even like we think about the final chapter when he's exposed at the end of that, he just kind of turns around and is smiling at her, but there's no, there's nothing happening, you know? And it's just there to say, oh, look at this creepy makeup, know. and now let's have the machete go into it. Like, I like the choice of making him more animated. And again, he's a monster now. He's a mon- he's a zombie monster. He's not going to be the same as he was when he was, you know, wearing the pillowcase over his head. You know what I mean? It's just it's just a different beast altogether. If you look at it that way, that's how I look at it. But anyway, I mean, then that's fine, you know. Hey, look, that's, that's what we do. I, I, I think less than design. I think the design just looks cheap. Like it looks like a Halloween mask from Party City. You mean the face, right? The Not face. The, rest of the face. Yeah, I got you. I understand. Wow. I got you. I'm more impressed with the rest of his body and how they really amped the design up on that. To, and I think another thing is when you're under that type of water, I think you you would become a little bloated, right? Yeah. <laughs> so there you go. I think that's why he looks kind of thicker. Don't get me started on seawater and water. And I don't know. I don't please. I don't need any marine biologists <laughs> tweeting at me. Like, well, actually, if a body's underwater for ten years. Okay, but let's let's go into the uh, the depths of uh, Charles in Charge. Uh... <laughs> That's what people want to hear about Highway to Heaven. They don't want to hear about you know fresh water versus salt water. <laughs> the Come mechanics, but yeah. Uh, um, all right. Well, anyway, let's move into our our next category called Help. He's killing me. He's killing me. <laughs> Well, I think I remember seeing one death in this movie, <laughs> so <laughs> uh, I, I think we might have a couple agreements here. But let's start with Terry. Terry, what what do you think is the is the best uh, death scene in this movie? Kill scene. Well, I am probably going to be the uh, the odd one out because I, I think a lot of people really would go with the sleeping bag scene, but I really Kate's death with the toot just never <laughs> fails to like send me down a giggle spiral. Like I just sit there just laughing at the ridiculousness of this party horn going in her eye and, and tooting. Um, so I think of the ones in the film that this is probably my favorite, but if we're including the ones that should have been in the film, mine would have been Ben's head being smushed like a ripe pimple as it's described yes. with um, they filled it up with cottage cheese and goo and like just, it's the, the snippet on, on camp crystal like memories looked gnarly. So if, 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 it had been Beekler's vision. That probably would have been mine. But as it is in the film, I have to go with his girlfriend. Hey, it's, it's a good one. And again, the, the even the uncut one's even more effective because you get a couple more beats of that toot coming out of that right. horn. <laughs> funnier. Even funnier. Uh, Mac, what do you think? Best death? I, I mean, I, I got to go with the sleeping bag. It, it's, it's, it's memorable for me. Uh, I had to go with the most memorable is basically what I'm saying. Sure. Yeah. Because I don't remember any of these other deaths until I watched the film, and the sleeping bag is iconic, and 
Um, I wish there were more. I mean, you know, obviously there was a lot more gory and bloodier deaths that just never made it, and uh, that would have been great. But um, yeah, sleeping bag. Yeah, I'll save the suspense, and I'll say it's for me. It's a sleeping bag, and I think it actually does work better in this iteration. I do. I do agree with Kane Hodder. I like that that one slam, and then exposed. Here she is. Next scene. I kind of like the quickness of it, actually, as opposed to the slow motion and the the, the repetition. Uh, Vanderbilt, what about you? What were we talking about? <laughs> you know, there's some kills in this movie. You heard about this? <laughs> That's three. <laughs> Um, it's the it's the the sleeping bag. Yeah, without a doubt. Uh, I like the I like the joke that leads up to it. I think it's one of the jokes in this movie that actually lands. Uh, Girl who gets killed, Stone Cold Fox, solid death. Not a lot of gore, but inventive. And I don't even know if I can say inventive or imaginative, but definitely like there was some real thought put into that. And I always appreciate that in Friday the Thirteenth Death. (laughs) And it's very odd, genuine thought. Yeah. Well, it's very on the nose for camping. Like they, there was a brainstorming se- session, and they were sitting around, like, okay, what do you do when you camp? Okay, you're in a sleeping bag. Okay, what would Jason? It's awesome. It's great. I do like the take up on that in the remake. One of the one of the few things I think actually yeah. work really well. We'll talk about that months from now. God help us all. Okay, well, let's move on to our next category, in which we're going to discuss whether or not. Jason has survived in a category we call He's Still There. All right, Vanderbilt, we'll talk about the alternate innings in a second. But my question to you, you're in a movie theater in 1988. Dukakis is running for president. (laughs) Um, Hope is on the horizon. Who knows? And you're sitting in the theater. The movie ends. Do you think Jason is dead? You know, this is one of the few movies, pardon me, I think in the series where it does kind of give a sense of finality without the alternate ending. Yeah. Okay. Uh, It kind of gives you a happy ending. Like they actually what I appreciate about this ending is that they kind of play on that notion of those are, you know, the classic four where the girl's getting hauled off to the ambulance and she's looking for her her boyfriend and he actually he's there he shows up he's alive he's well they hold hands they pull up the the paramedics pull up the mask it it gives a sense of finality that jason is actually dead but you know what you know what it is it's the alternate ending to halloween too and that's what exactly it yeah, totally reminds yeah. me of that but being even in, 19, in 1988, I, I'm sure I would be just as cynical as I am now and know that there was going to be another one on the horizon. <laughs> All right. But it, in the context of the film, I get the sense that, yes, Jason is very much dead. D-E-D. Mac, I have a question for you. Is Jason dead? <laughs> <laughs> I think he's dead. I mean, it's very clear when Daddy Shepard comes out of the water and grabs him. It, well, first of all, there's a few a couple things you need to remember. Number one, Jason's deathly afraid of the water. So, yeah, I mean, so he's being pulled. That alone. So he is being pulled yeah. deep into the depths. What do we say? We say Crystal Lake's probably what, twenty feet deep, thirty feet. Uh, twenty feet, probably right. 
Um, it's probably deeper than that in, in its center, but we're talking, we're right here on the shore, okay? I mean, I agree, Mac. I mean, you think so, of, uh, I mean, with the exception of part four, six in this movie, he is absolutely terrified of going in the water. I mean, we, yeah, we just yeah. can't go without. Uh, and it, the, the way they shoot Daddy Shepard, like when you see John come out of the water, John, <laughs> he, that's his name. That's his name in real life and his name in the movie. Uh, yeah, no, not, I, I, I do think. Water, I don't believe. No. John's not. No, he's been down there, like you know, living it up. So I think that, but <laughs> I think like that the way <laughs> it's more in the way that he grabs Jason's knees, and the, the conviction on his face when he comes out of the water. No, I, I do think. I think obviously there's probably another one. I don't think Jason's dead because after Jason's, Jason lives. How how is he ever really dead? You know what I mean. I, I think going forward, I I don't think you ever really think he's really dead. Well, no, that's not true. That's not true. But uh, <laughs> personally, I don't think I don't think he's actually dead okay. at the end of this one. But yeah, it is kind of a happy ending. I I don't know if it if it doesn't lend itself to like ooh, there's another one on the way. But at the same time, you're kind of like I'm I'm kind of glad. I think you want to believe he's dead after this movie. You know, Terry, what do you think? Well. Before I get to that, I, I kind of want like a side story of the odd couple of um, Daddy Shepard and Jason <laughs> stuck at the bottom of the ocean for 10 years. Like, yeah, what are these guys doing? <laughs> what's going on there? Um, <laughs> I mean, did the Daddy Shepard's drinking problem get resolved or <laughs> like, are they these are the questions that I around? must know. Like, are, did they form a friendship? Is is Jason happy that Daddy Shepard's pulling him back in the lake to get away from these meddlesome kids? Like, what? Maybe it's a happy ending for Jason. Um, yeah, because I'd like to see between that and then obviously the beginning of Jason Takes Manhattan, where you just see him buried beneath power cables. Like, what what led <laughs> to that argument that that made Daddy Shepard bury Jason under power cables? It's like you are a terrible conversationalist. I am burying you under these power cables. Yeah. Um, no, I do. Do I think he survived? Yes, I absolutely do. Because at the end of 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 Jason Lives, I mean, let's. You know, he gets set on fire in the lake. He gets chained to the bottom of the ocean. He gets his face cut by um, the propeller. And that kind of didn't necessarily kill him. Like, him just being dragged underwater by this ghost dad. Um, Bill Cosby? Ghost dad. I'm not not legally allowed to say ghost dad on (laughs) podcasts. We're being reported by Apple right now. Um, By this phantom father. Um, I just, I I don't... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> he just like what re-ropes him back in the lake or throws him under uh, power lines later i no he's not dead he's just he's as unanimated as he was at the start of the movie it's like a sitcom he ends up in the same place he was i'm just imagining the ghost dad poster now with <laughs> this father like tipping his cap and peeking through the door like daddy shepherd's back He's got an Jason. Jason's um, on the other side of the door. And, yeah. Okay. Here's my counter: is that this is the first time. Yeah. Granted, we had you know, boat, boat engines and uh, chains preventing Jason from coming back and everything else, but this is the first time he's had a kind of supernatural death, right? So if you look at it through that lens, and the lens of, well, maybe he's seriously taking him to. The afterlife. It's so stupid anyway. I mean, what are we talking about here? I'm just trying to do a counterpoint here. I'm just trying to do a counterpoint. So maybe if the spirit is taking him away, maybe in that regard he's gone. And the fact that we don't have some cliffhanger ending makes me think, for I think the 
six times in seven movies that Jason's actually dead <laughs> at the end of the movie because I'm that naive and optimistic about the future of these characters <laughs> and, 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 poor Cam- and poor Crystal Lake's existence. But we do need uh, to talk about this, is that there is an alternate ending that I mistook for the alternate ending of Jason Lives. Correct, Vanderbilt? Yes. Yes, that was the one, yeah. Yeah, that's right. Because I think this ends with somebody fishing, and then you see Jason jump out and jump yeah. on the boat and take him down, right? Absolutely, yeah, and that's part of the uh, footage. I believe it's part of the same reel of the footage that was cut for the effects. Yeah. And that's available to see, too. I've seen that footage. Yeah, but, that's but, pretty readily available on all the box sets, I he, think. You know what? This one, again, might be like some Mandela effect thing where I think we've all talked about it, but he's not wearing the mask, right? Because that wouldn't make any sense. No, it's just his hands. Like, the fisherman's on a boat, and he, like, I just grabs him. Okay, I can't remember. Kind of yeah, like I, the shark does uh, in the beginning of Jaws 4. Oh, with Mitchell Anderson from Back to Hannibal, The Adventures of Tom Sawyer and Huckleberry Finn, oh, co-starring God. Raphael Sabarge that Mac forgot about, the actor Mac forgot about. <laughs> uh, thank you for bringing it back. <laughs> and what better way Thanks a lot. From, from Hannibal to the final chapter, let's give our final thoughts. But now, Jason's reign of terror is over. Okay, I'd like to kick off. If, if, you, if nobody minds, I mean, we've given our thoughts over the last three hours here. But, you know, again, this was supposed to be an effects-laden, truly visceral, punishing experience that was just taken away from John Carbeekler. So what we're left with is this, you could describe it as a, I don't know, corpse that's been at the bottom of a lake for 11 years. You could describe it like that, and now it's reemerged, and we're, we're here to bear witness to it, but... This is not the movie he set out to make, and it, and as a result, it's uh, it's not the worst Friday entry. I could argue up to this point, it's tied for me as the worst Friday entry through the first seven movies. Um, it's a real shame, once again, that we'll never see the true vision of this because of cropped VHS grainy footage. I mean, maybe we'll have the technology one day to reinsert it, and it won't look too glaring, kind of like... They failed to do with that My Bloody Valentine director's cut. I don't know if anybody has ever seen that, but it's really apparent when the, the deleted scenes are popping back in. But I do, I think Kane Hodder is a great Jason, and that does make up for a lot. But at the end of the day, especially when you, you're coming off of part six, which is easily in my top three, if not top two, it's a bit of a, a downturn. And this franchise definitely starts for me. I know it's not for Vanderbilt. But for a lot of us, it starts going in this real downswing for the foreseeable future. So I'm going to be a little harsh here, kind of like the MPAA was harsh with the cuts of this movie. And I'm going to give it two hockey masks out of five. Yeah, not a, not a favorite for me. Um, Mac, what do you think? Yeah, I'm going to go with two hockey masks. I, and really only because I know what's coming. And I know that <laughs> I, I gotta have some room to move. Um, yeah. It was an interesting rewatch, and I think that the only good thing about rewatching some of the ones that I didn't love the first time around or, uh, is that this is one of the only movies I, I haven't seen a whole lot of. So it was actually a very interesting rewatch. I was invested. Um, I don't. I did not remember a lot of it, which was nice. Um, but yeah, it's cut. It was cut to death. I think you know, even with those bloody, even with those scenes being more bloody or more gory. Uh, I don't know if it would have done a whole lot for me because that's, you know, kind of neither here or there. I mean, if the story and the 
I, I, it was the 30 minute mark of this movie and I felt like it had been on for two hours. Mm. So that's never a good sign unless you're really loving it. And I wasn't. So, uh, yeah, two, two, uh, what were the hockey masks? That were sure. That's what I think it's we're still going with. <laughs> like it changes every episode or something. Uh, Vanderbilt. Yeah. I think it's interesting to look at, uh, Friday the 13th, the new blood in the grand scheme of how horror played out through the eighties, particularly the slasher cycle uh, and particularly the history of the Friday the 13th movies and uh, the eighties themselves. Uh, this is definitely where the, the series starts a downward swing that is miraculously uh, swung back up in 1993. Edit that in post. <laughs> Mac, please make a timestamp for Mike. <laughs> and uh, we'll do Freddy Krueger is at the height of his powers. Jason's old news. He's old hat. Uh, have we seen Halloween 4 yet? Has it come out in by May of 1988? No. Oh, God. I think it's right before. I'm looking. Keep, keep talking. But I think you have to you know, take that all in consideration. I think the I rank this towards the, the bottom half of my Friday the 13th rankings. And I think the biggest problem with it is that it is a great concept. I like when they inject some imagination into the Friday the 13th series, which they really started to do, I think, with part six. Let's make it kind of a comedy. Let's do whatever we want. Let's truly give the auteurs a chance to do whatever they want with these series, like they do with the Nightmare on Elm Street films. I just feel like the concept of Carrie versus Jason is completely squandered on New Blood. It's ugly. The, the score is ugly. The lighting is ugly. The characters are ugly. It's dour. And I, I feel like it's almost like Belcher was just had only seen Friday the 13th Part 5 and was trying to build off the kind of awful characters you had that. I think the character, mm. even though it's a Friday the 13th movie, have a lot to do with why you would end up enjoying these films. Aside from that, the design of Jason is iconic. There's no doubt that I appreciate that Kane Hodder took the mantle of the role and kind of made it his own and really kind of gave it some, some weight and made it something to truly be proud of for the back half of the 80s, the early 90s. But that's all not about the movie itself that's about the making of the movie the movie itself is a slog it's dull yeah. two stars two hockey masks rather terry well yeah like what mike said i think that the the background of this movie is a lot more interesting than the movie that we got to see um yeah. I, I think the i would have loved to have been on on set to see all the background shenanigans that were going on with the crew um i think <laughs> that would have been uh, quite a more intriguing <laughs> and life-filled um, experience. I, you know, I this this movie has a special place in my heart just because it was my my first very brief introduction to the series, and for that that one sight of Jason coming out of the the pond with his rib cage exposed and his back like flayed open, just it it, it established what I thought Jason was. And honestly, like I, I do think six is probably honestly my favorite of these of these early these ones. And so coming from that to this movie is sort of like a a wet fart um, or a toot in a the toot. eye. There you <laughs> go. <laughs> um, but like I, I think that I, this movie is basically just people aimlessly walking through the woods for a good middle <laughs> section. And I, 
I noticed that the more and more, because I've watched this now twice for for the podcast to make sure I was prepared. And both times I'm like in the middle section, I'm losing focus because it's just, okay, why is this person walking around the woods? Why is this person walking around the woods? How how big is this woods that we can just stumble across these bodies like willy nilly? So I just, yeah, I, it's not what it what it wanted to be. I think that if, if Beekler had been given the opportunity to create what he wanted, it would have been probably um, a lot better better in terms of like the the gore aspect of it but you can't you can't overlook just how aimless a lot of it feels true so i would probably give it two and a half uh masks to be honest but um it's not it's not going to win any awards anytime soon and we're still looking for david in the in the woods did they ever <laughs> find him is he dead what happened what are we talking about <laughs> i think his head got chopped off and then she got thrown out the window anyway listen I do have one more very important question. <laughs> yes. And Terry, please think about this for a second. Oh, boy. Is John Carl Beekler's 1988 Friday the 13th Part 7, The New Blood, better than Martin Scorsese's 2019, The Irishman? Oh. That is a hard question because <laughs> I have not seen The Irishman. Oh, my God. <laughs> Oh wow, <laughs> a, new, a new wrinkle. A new wrinkle. In there this you go. Bit. So <laughs> for me, I can't really compare. So yes, this movie is better than the Irishman. Unbelievable Man. on the record too. This there you go. Incredible. This will live forever on the internet. Yep. This is this is the poll that we'll use for the advertising for the episode. You won't believe <laughs> what Terry, um, Mike Vanderbilt. As, as this podcast is uh, oh well. god. <laughs> <laughs> I started to realize I think I liked the Irishman a lot more than you guys. Uh, but I think uh, undoubtedly at at five hours long, the Irishman is less of a slog than Friday the 13th, Part 7 or New Blood. So the New Blood is not better than the Irishman. OK, fair enough. Matt Gerber. Yeah. How long is the Irishman exactly? Five and a half Three hours. hours and 29 minutes. We, I'm looking at the call recorder here, and even though we're not going to be going that long, we it's are close. at 328.45. Yeah, but a lot of that's going to be edited because it's a behind-the-scenes issue. I know, I know. I No, I, I like Irishman more than this film. Yeah, I think even if this was John Carl Beekler's true vision, nothing got cut out, I will still say The Irishman is a better film than The New Blood. Let it be known. Let it be, I know, it's a hot take. It's a hot take out there. Well, thank you, everybody, again, for joining us on Halloweenies, AJ Sinvori's podcast. Please be sure to leave us a rating and review on wherever you listen to this year episode. They really do help. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to our Patreon uh, at www.patreon.com backslash Halloweenies pod for more goodies this month, including an upcoming audio commentary that I know young Mike Vanderbilt will be participating in on An American Werewolf in London. Looking forward to that. And thanks again to Terry from Gaily Dreadful. Be sure to check out his podcast, Scar to Death. Terry, thanks a lot for joining us. Thank you. I'm glad uh, to be here. It's a lot of fun. I'll have yeah, you back in the fun. future. Thanks for coming on. We'll have you back in the future for Deep Star Six. We'll figure oh, out why yes. Harry Mafferdini opted to do that. <laughs> um, but join us next month as we mysteriously manage to take a cruise ship from Crystal Lake to New York. <laughs> and. Friday the 13th, Part 8, Jason uh, Takes Vancouver, better known as Friday the 13th, Part 8, Jason Takes Manhattan. But until then, bye, 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 bye.
Consequence Podcast Network.